Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear. Ballyhoo. Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await the inside of the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside, so hurry up and get your seats. Tonight you are about to step down into the world of shadow and seediness, the world of intrigue and infidelity, the world of danger and disillusionment, the world of noir. So get in your seats. We have a street in store for you, one that certainly cannot be beat. You've seen them all on the screen before. Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, Edward G. Robinson. Now you see them all together, tied up in a complicated web of insurance and murder at the hands of Billy Wilder with 1944's Double Indemnity. See the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it, and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. Always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was keys. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? You don't know Keyes. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. He'll investigate you. He'll have you shattered. He'll watch every minute from now on. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. But not of Keyes. I'm afraid of us. I'd like to move in on her right now, tonight. If it wasn't for Norton and his striped pants ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make a head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it, and uh, somebody else. Only you haven't got a single thing to go on, Keys. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometimes, somewhere, they've got to meet.
Now that you've seen the show, we'll get to the talk of the day. The topic at hand is the influence and the legacy of noir at the hands of one Mr. Billy Wilder and his help to formally cement the noir genre and what it would become. Here to discuss it with me is a writer and a film lover who has graciously agreed to sit down with myself to talk some insurance fraud and about the little guy inside who tells us something is wrong. He also may spring some wisdom, such as the fact that kids need dads and that you should never go fishing with Al Neary. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Adam Jewell. Love it. I love the intro. I think <laughs> it's like, how have you not um, done trailer intros before? Because it does feel very, because if you watch the trailer for Double Indemnity, it feels very much like that. And also, yeah. I think the the two things kids kids need dads and never go fishing with Al Neary are important lessons to learn. So, so one thing that I will definitely pass on to my son. Yeah, absolutely. So Adam, uh, welcome first of all to the show. Um, we're old friends. We're old collaborators. This has been a while since we've been on the horn with each other, and you were uh, wonderfully uh, engaged with uh, Shamley. And unfortunately, I didn't uh, get to you in time to do a Shamley. But we're here for you for Double Indemnity. Before we talk about Billy Wilder, though, we're going to move out uh, move out of the golden age and into the new wave for a second. Explain to the audience who may not know why you should never go fishing with Al Neri. Um, I mean, I think the easiest thing to say is ask Fredo Corleone, but you can't because he's dead because <laughs> he has a bullet in the back of his head because Al Neri fucking shot him. Sorry, can I swear? Yeah, No, you can. Yeah, totally fine. <laughs> um because Al Neri put a bullet in the back of his head. Yep. So under the guise of, hey, we're going to go fishing. Okay, wait, let me step back. For the people who haven't seen The Godfather, this is from Godfather Part 2. Wait, wait, wait. They made a second Godfather, Adam? That sounds absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> yes. So, spoiler, um, Michael takes over at the end of 1 and then mm -hmm. has built this wonderful crime family in 2 and he finds out that Fredo betrays him breaks his heart and but gets back in his good graces but oh jk he decides oh i'm still gonna kill him um and it's under the guise that fredo's gonna take michael's son anthony fishing and then at the last minute connie the affable sister just says oh hey sorry no anthony they're going to uh, las vegas now instead so you're going to have to go fishing with just Al. Red flag. <laughs> For those who don't know, Al Neri is um, Michael's number one muscle guy. So you see, ladies and gentlemen, you don't just learn about the golden age of Hollywood on this podcast. You will also learn about some modern Hollywood lessons. Um, you know, I think arguably within the case of The Godfather and the people behind it, the other one is Don't Start a Vineyard that everybody hates. But, you know, I mean, that's... <laughs> That's neither here nor there. Um, uh, you know, you know don't like, cast your own daughter in the movie. <laughs> hey, you know what? We don't know. If it wasn't for that, maybe we wouldn't get On the Rocks, which is one of my favorite movies of this year. So, you know, or as or as I've been referring to it as Bill Murray Divorce, de de divorce Detective, because that's all the movie. <laughs> the, the Apple Plus is the only is the only thing I don't that I'm not subscribed to, so I have not seen it. Well, we, uh, we, we, we have some slight theaters open, and I went to a screening in the afternoon when I knew it would be dead, and uh, 
it, it is a very um, it is a very fun little caper of a movie um, where it's about familial reconciliation, but really it's about Bill Murray being a detective dad. So, you know, like I'm I'm all for Bill Murray being a silly detective who drives around in a jalopy. So uh, but Adam, uh, so I'll start this off since you are a new guest to um, this particular sphere of podcasting um, with Golden Age Hollywood. You're a, you're, you, you yourself went to film school. You yourself uh, have written. Um, tell me, how do you uh, look at the golden age of Hollywood when you think about it in the grand scheme of film? Um, I look at it, I don't know. I find it, I'm very torn by the golden age of Hollywood, um, mainly because I... Oh, I guess to put it bluntly, I find it a bit overrated. Um, where you find some, you do find some great movies and great films that do come out of it, but you also see a stagnation, um, mm-hmm. a lack of ingenuity in terms of just storytelling um, and things like that. Um, if you look at another movie, like I, I guess I would say coming from the States, mm-hmm. uh, other movies that were in this certain time period that were coming from different uh, different countries. Like, you do get the birth of Italian neorealism and of German expressionism, and also somewhat like the start of the French New Wave. So you see things like in the movie, like Breathless, you see them taking so many different chances and different things, but I think once I get... I would say Citizen Kane kind of ruined a lot of things, like where it was innovated and also just kind of said, oh, hey, we can just do this and only this. And until (laughs) like a new crop of people came along and said, you know what, we're going to do it. Fuck you. We're doing it this way. And because this is the way I know how to do it. And watch this. Adam, Adam, this is this is Orson Welles. Are you saying that I imploded the studio system before it ever got an implosion in the 2010s? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that Citizen Kane, well, um, well, it was a, um, well, Orson Welles pioneered a few techniques. It still remains overrated, but Mm -hmm. that's. I, I still contend The Godfather is better than Citizen Kane. Yeah, that's fine. I will be sure to haunt you and your children down the line. I am Orson Welles. Um, no, um, sorry that sorry that fat ghost had to come in and ruin our conversation. Um, uh, it's um, but no, you're you are um, I, you're not you're not alone in your opinion, um, and and even I have. Uh, when, when it comes to the golden age of Hollywood for, for me in that respect and in, in what you're referring to the American end from all research that I've gathered, it seems as if like their, their claim to fame besides being the, the, the country that was making the most successful ones and the ones that people wanted to see of the time that they were much more innovative, innovative with bigger productions, lavish productions, whereas other countries dealt more with internalized storytelling that's where you get german expressionism or the more mellow tone of like norwegian cinema or you have um british cinema having to create scale out of nothing which is why hitchcock was so successful over there before he came over to united states and worked with a fucking lunatic um and uh 
and and that's also when uh, you also have. Uh, I mean, the, the French were also kind of innovating their techniques too. A lot of those European influences come into America, but they're also spread out between basic filmmaking. Now, I maintain that there's a lot of treasures to be found in there if you look hard enough. But if you're looking outside in and only and and seeing it from that perspective, I would totally understand why it would seem that way. So then my follow-up question would be within that what what is it for you with this period like what is it what does a film have to do to make it stand out for you especially when it comes to American cinema? Uh well I think well one of the big things is I would say is it needs to it does need to there does has to be some things that hold up from in this time because obviously there are a lot of issues with a lot of movies uh, <laughs> early on. I mean, shit, people still teach. Um, what the hell is the movie? Um, Birth of a Nation. Yes, thank you. Birth yeah. of a Nation. Be yeah. like, oh, look how innovative it is with editing. It's like, you know what? You can find a movie that's better edited. It's yeah. like, yeah, cool, great. Yeah, they, whatever. They, it's like they, the movie's fucking racist as shit. Yep. Have you ever, uh, you ever heard Spike Lee's story about what happened when he was shown the film at NYU? No. So Spike Lee was going to NYU at the time, and um, they showed the film, and he asked the question, you know, why do we have to watch this? And the professor showed the film with providing no context for the historical uh, implications of the film and the aftermath of the film, which. There's an independent lens documentary that if anybody hasn't looked out, uh, looked for it, um, it is about Birth of a Nation, but specifically it is about the riots that it caused um, and the racial prejudice that it inspired. Um, so it is one of those films that uh, Spike Lee has said openly, along with Gone with the Wind, is like, if you're going to show these films, please discuss them with historical context because that's essential to understanding why we've why we have them around it's not it's not getting rid of the films it's look you need to you need to understand what's going on here you can't just watch this particular piece blind like historical context is needed it's why the gone with the wind situation earlier this year was ridiculous because people were bitching because they were getting a special feature. <laughs> that's, that's basically what they got was an additional historical piece of contextual information added onto their streaming service that they're probably not, they're probably not watching that film anyway. Um, so, but, um, so with, with all this to say though, um, when I reached out to you to do the podcast, you provided a, you provided a top five, which, you know, uh, I, it, I, it leaned a little bit into the 60s, which is a valid area that I want to discuss. You, you actually brought up one of my top 10 films of all time. So obviously we'd have to talk some Mel Brooks eventually. Um, um, I, I hope to do it before he dies so that he might listen to it and it'll be the last thing that makes him happy before he croaks. But, <laughs> uh, uh, um, but uh, amongst the films you chose, uh, was one was Double Indemnity, which stuck out to me because it is a film that is eternally like it's such a classic like it it has far-reaching uh influence to this very day um i would argue even like I, I would argue that the 90s um takes a lot from double indemnity in terms of certain filmmakers who ended up utilizing it to their advantage down the line 
um, specifically two brothers who have never made a bad movie in their life, period. But we'll, we'll talk about them a little bit we later can. at the end of the show. That's <laughs> debatable, but... Yeah, but, yeah. But, but see, Adam, you'd think it's, it is, but it isn't. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of things that... Well, we'll talk. We'll, yeah. we'll yeah. talk yeah. about it. But yeah, there are a lot of things, not just directors, but also. But it, that's what I'm talking about. Some of the things, like yes, there are some glaring issues with double ind- double indemnity, dealing with just kind of how people are treated, how they're talked to, and things like that. And that's one of those things where it's sign of the times. Just because it was okay then, it still doesn't make it okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it does have to be addressed, just kind of, yeah, there are some definite sexist moments and very predatory um, subtext from Fred McMurray to Barbara Stanwyck, but if you look at the story and the technicality and how it was filmed, there there are a lot of good that goes into it. Yes, and that's, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, because before we jump right into the production of Double Indemnity, we have to talk a little bit about noir. Um, uh, noir is a concept uh, that is the the it's not a concept; it's a genre. Well, Let's John, get that out of the way first. But see, now here's the thing: where I'm going to bring up the difference is that at the time when these films were being made, they were not considered noir by the filmmakers making them. They were attributed to That's crime true. genre or just melodrama. What makes a noir a noir is is one the way you film it, but two how far the story will take it. Um, there's uh, there the uh, the French critics Raymond Bourre and Etienne Chemoton, uh in their 1955 book um, *Paranorma du Film Noir Américain*. Um, uh, were the original basis like they were the ones who kind of established this phraseology. Um, yeah. Uh, and so the the phraseology kind of comes out of an interesting confluence of events. Uh, first of all, when French film filmmakers or French film goers are getting these films specifically, they are getting it in a post World War II world. Uh, at a certain point um, during the war, the German government, um, like they do, banned all U.S. films from distribution in the territories that they had conquered and um, occupied. And so when the war ended, they got a slew of films on backlog uh, around 1946, and one of them was Double Indemnity. And it propelled these critics to basically coin this term where they are pushing the boundary, they're going further in content and detail than the crime films of the 30s would. So like your Public Enemies, your Little Caesars, your Roaring Twenties, these are... These are crime films, but the there is no um, there is no externalization and character basis for their actions. It's you know they're you know Jimmy Cagney commits violence because the script tells him to, but there's no like d- digging into the psychology of uh, Tom Powers in The Public Enemy. He's just a bad person. Um, whereas no- Noir expands on that. Um, you 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 also have within it. Uh, different character tropes that emerge from it. One of them that we're going to talk about is the femme fatale, which uh, if you if you look at other interpretations of this, you find it interesting. One that I found most fascinating was it was a uh, a writer's response to 
the women in the workforce of the era where they are having to go to work during the war while the men are overseas. The men come back. There seems to be this attempt to reclaim, uh, you know, their position in the home. And, you know, women have felt power for the first time that they are not allowed to feel uh, after the war is over because, you know, the men are home. Um, but, you know, and, and thusly, it, you know, it's it's another man way of, you know, tampering down um, the ambitions of another person, let alone another in uh, another gender. Um, but specifically, the femme fatale emerges sort of as a response to that, which has both positive and negative connotations. Positive in the fact that you see strong female characters with a will of their own. Negative in the sense that they are painted as villains. Um, so this is a genre that really kicks off with Double Indemnity. It has a lot of origin, though, in the Maltese Falcon from 1941, um, where similar things are happening within the film that would suggest it is a noir. However, a key thing with noir, ultimately, that I felt is that it, you have a post-war disillusionment um, and you're coming, you're coming back from war into a world that is less prettified, is less defined. There's, there's amorality, there are blurred lines, there's gray areas, and these are filmmakers attempting to explore those gray areas through the web of crime. It's why a film like Double Indemnity can tell the story of a man who basically goes in to shell, sell insurance and walks out a murderer. So, like, well, you don't have, you don't have to educate me on film noir. Of course uh, I don't. Tell, tell got that. Tell, tell. Uh, I think one thing to think to remember though is um, the film noir came about simply because with the fucking war going on, there was rationing. So everything from tires to the fucking electricity was being rationed. So that's why you get like a lot of these pools of lights and very hard lighting and it's dark and shadowy. So people were just like, well, let's just lean into that. And then also at the same time, you like you said, you have this post-war disillusionment and then um, you have people coming back from overseas that, you know, mainly male that have just seen so much shit and they they don't want fucking Cleopatra. They don't want like these other crime films where Jimmy Cagney is essentially a fucking caricature. It's mm -hmm. like, no, they're taking these hard-boiled crime stories that you would find from like books and also like radio and serials and they said, like, alright, let's make these because yes. this is like something that a GI coming back from Germany that saw his friends get murdered can kind of attest to and see that like, Hey, the world is pretty fucking shitty. Yeah. And, and I will, and I will add to that, that you have, in addition to that, you do, you do have these, you mentioned before, like, well, we've got, you know, different radio plays and different detective novels. Like one of the things we'll talk about with, with the production of this film is how you have two pretty legendary writers uh, within the sphere of this film, which is probably why the movie is as amazing as it is. Um, in addition to Wilder, obviously, is a very talented director. We'll talk a little bit about him. Um, but the, these detective novels of the era, like they, a lot of them get their start initially with Dashiell Hammett coming in and you know writing these more realistic stories with Sam Spade at the forefront. And then you have 
Raymond Chandler, who is one of the co-writers of the film we are discussing today, coming in with his Philip Marlowe uh, character and specifically really digging into the existential crisis that his characters can feel, not just Marlowe, but also the people that he's investigating, the people at the forefront of the crimes that are being committed and or questioned. And I will say that there's um, there's definitely an element of radio to this. When I was rewatching Double Indemnity, I was I, I it's been a while since I'd seen the movie and it's probably good that I had been listening to a lot of suspense uh, over the past month because suspense, a radio show from the era that lasted into the end of the golden age of radio. Uh, it, it very much has these stories all over the place. This combined with the whistler have these stories of infidelity, backstabbing, two timing, and like all these, all the tropes that are in a noir film are on those radio shows. And then this is the, uh, visual representation of that. Um, and I also do like the fact that you brought up rationing and I just love the idea of people being interviewed about how did you create the art that is noir? And they go like, what art? We had to save on the light bill and keep the Nazis from bombing our studio. <laughs> I mean, Double Indemnity came out in 44. Yep, 44. And, that, and, that, so, and, and this is at the, the... Yep, and this is in July 1944 so specifically. So there's still a full year of the war going on. We are still in the middle of rationing. We're still trying to sell war bonds. We're still trying to get this get this war won. And this is around the time where America is feeling wartime fatigue. Um, and you, and there's different books that address this just, you know, general feeling of it keeps going on and on and on. And you also have, uh, amongst other things, the black market, which is, you discussed. So Americans got a taste of, you know, like the hardships that they'd feel on their end as this war is being fought. Um, and, and, and within that, you know, obviously the, a modern allegory that we could point to it is, is like, you know, not everybody wants to wear masks or sometimes they do wear masks, you know, like sometimes you just need to wear a fucking mask. Um, but, uh, so within that, let's just jump into double indemnity. Now, before we do production, Adam, how did you get into this movie? Like, how did you first see it? Uh, I first saw it in funny enough. I saw it in school is undergrad um i want to say it was an actual film noir class <laughs> um it was a class on film noir and part of it was like okay we're gonna just watch film noir movies and the first the movie class. that we watched was double indemnity and i'm like this fucking movie is awesome <laughs> um, and then i also went down into a deeper rabbit hole not just within the uh film the more world but the billy wilder world <laughs> um and here's the thing billy wilder if you i mean you but for everyone listening <laughs> he goes on probably the greatest run a director can go on mm-hmm. like in terms of the movies he makes okay so i'm just i just want to lay this out for you for he has double indemnity in 1944 Mm -hmm. he does a few other small things then 1950 rolls around Mm -hmm. and he comes out with a little movie called sunset boulevard then it just fucking goes up from there 51 ace in the hole 53 stalag 17 54 sabrina 55 the seven year itch 57 the spirit of st louis also in 57 love in the afternoon witness for the prosecution 59, 
some like it hot, and then to cap it all off, he ends it in 1960 with The Apartment. That's a fucking 10-year run of nothing but hits and mm-hmm. a shit ton of accolades. Like, yeah. I don't think there's any other director that could that goes on that big of a run just for I, I, their career. Like, there are some, like, yeah, I've had a nice little five, three-year run, but no one that goes on a whole decade run of just saying, watch this. Yeah, there's, um, there, I mean, I think the closest you might find would be Michael Curtiz, but I think you'd find gaps in the middle of it because Curtiz was one of those... Uh, studio directors who cranked out a film like a, a film every six months. So like he has a lot of classics under his belt, but not in the sequential order that we're talking about in terms of Wilder. Um, and Wilder, you 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 failed to mention, but not not to not not to any discredit. Um, the year after Double Indemnity, he wins his first Oscar for The Lost Weekend, which is arguably one of the first. Rep, true representations of alcoholism on the screen uh, with Ray Milland winning ba- uh, best actor for it as well. And he, so, but he wins best director and best adapted screenplay. So, so Wilder is, uh, you know, one of these, one of these iconic directors that obviously talking about him, it's not just going to be this episode. He's going to pop up all over the place. He's a, uh, he's one of the writers on uh, one of my favorite films from 1939, which is Ninochka. Um, which is a clever, clever satire. If you've never seen Ninochka, go see Ninochka. It's really fucking good. I, I don't know how else I can um, uh, sell Ninochka. Um, Garbo laughs in it, guys. That's the selling point. Garbo laughs. Because um, <laughs> um, she'd never laughed before. She'd always had a serious face. But the thing is, is that she's serious in that movie, too. Um, but prior to Double Indemnity, though, Wilder as a director... He starts off in the comedy realm, which is what he would arguably become much more known for down the line, which makes Double Indemnity and The Lost Weekend and some other, you know, spared uh, entries in his filmography interesting because I'd argue when we think Wilder, we think comedy director, we off the bat. I don't know if we think immediately practical inventor of a genre. <laughs> like which then which then only makes his greatness even better because here's the thing. He's able to just fucking... He basically invents the film noir. I'm saying it right now. Fight me. Um, and then 10, 15 years later, he fucking comes up with the modern-day rom-com with The Apartment. And yes. every other rom-com you see is basically The Apartment in some way, shape, or form. Which and, is interesting, because like, the year he before... Goes, just... He fucking goes from Sunset Boulevard... A, Dark crime movie that also is obsessed with Hollywood and won all the gajillion Oscars because the Academy loves it when you talk about Hollywood. Oh, wait, wait, Adam, I'm sorry. Did you just say that Sunset Boulevard won gajillions of Oscars? Because we had a tweet earlier this year that would um, that that made America realize that it did not win the Best Picture award <laughs> from a certain from a certain high ranking official in this country. <laughs> Wait, what? Did, yes. I, what? did I miss this? Oh, my God. So when Parasite won Best Picture, um, uh, uh, Idiot-in-Chief post uh, t- tweeted that, why can't we have good Best Picture winners like Gone with the Wind and Sunset Boulevard? And we talked about it on Real Nerds. And my, my, and I told them, like, look, guys, it's just it's not enough that he, you know, stoked that Gone with the Wind fire, but he got fucking Sunset Boulevard wrong. This guy's an idiot. <laughs> like, Sunset Boulevard uh, did not win Best Picture. It did win... Um, 
uh, Best Story and Screenplay, which went to Charlie Brackett, Billy Wilder, and D.M. Marshman Jr., and Best Art Direction, and Best Score. Sadly, Sunset Boulevard did not win Best Actress, which it's still a bug in my craw to this day because how do you not give Gloria Swanson that fucking Oscar? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's also true. Yeah. yeah. Because Sunset Boulevard, I can't remember. Doesn't it have the record for most Oscars, or am I thinking of a different movie? No, it's it, that's that's all about Eve. That's all about Eve. Oh, that's fucking right. Yeah, uh, it's but it but it's fine because Sunset Boulevard is the Hollywood movie. When you think Hollywood, you can't not think Sunset Boulevard. You also can't not think Eric von Stroheim and think, wow, that's where his career ended up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I really want to do an episode on Stroheim's greed. <laughs> like just just try to figure out what are we missing here. Um, but again, um, but, so, but, again but yeah, it goes to what I'm saying is like he could fucking do almost anything, and I think that's like at the level of greatness as well as his underratedness. Mm-hmm. That's not a word, but I'm making it a word. Don't edit that out. No, that's fine. I won't. Don't. <laughs> How underrated he is as both a writer and director, because people think of like the golden age of Hollywood. They think of people like, I mean, some of these guys, some of these people are, yes, I'm not debating any of their greatness. Like, you know, some, they think of like Kurosawa. They think of Capra. Um, and to some extent, they think of like John Ford. Um, and people like that, but they don't really, and Hitchcock, they don't really think of Wilder, which is mind-boggling, just because of the simple fact that, like, he never, I guess he never had, like, a psycho or something that completely captures an audience. But I would say him inventing film noir and the modern rom-com should be good enough. And I think that makes him actually better than some of the others because they only knew one genre. Whereas he Mm -hmm. could be like, all right, I'll do this. Watch me do this. It's very, um, like I'm trying to figure out a director that would nowadays that could do something like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard because with the way the, the, with the way I at least perceive the business working, it seems like when a director is stuck in a genre, um, it's very hard for them to shake out of that. Uh, You'd have to go outside into the independent realm in order to really test your own boundaries. Um, I, I would say that Scott Derrickson's made the transition in a very interesting way from horror to superhero films, but it's a bit of a different world that we're talking about here when we're talking about, the fundamental genres that we know from film, like comedy, drama, mystery, romance, etc. You know, if you wanted to be a director in that era, you had to be able to do everything when you're hired by a studio. I brought up Curtiz earlier. Curtiz makes Casablanca um, in 1942. A couple of years before, he's kind of practically inventing the modern action film with Adventures of Robin Hood. So, like, you had to be able to do everything in yeah. order to even make a dent there. Um, and but Wilder, you know, we there should be a longer episode. There, I know you brought up the apartment as one to discuss down the line, and we'll probably dig more into Wilder um, and his background on it. But like, some for those who don't know, he came from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was later inv- in, invaded by the Nazis. Um, he started out as a journalist, and then um, started working as a screenwriter, um, and left for Paris um, and then would end up le- relocating to Hollywood in 1933. Um, uh, and he became a naturalized citizen in 39. 
and he starts he starts working for the studios and writing and then he moves up into directing um his by the time he gets to double indemnity it's very much he's worked his way up he's made two films and then he's just like well i'd like to take a crack at this and so uh he he's he's one of those people who sets his sights upon double indemnity this uh this film was originally uh conceived script wise as a project between him and his uh, his partner Charles Brack Charles Brackett but Charles Brackett refused to work on this screenplay because he said the material was too dirty <laughs> um another thing that it irritates me about the golden age of hollywood they're in their <laughs> stupid fucking haze code oh you mean the Hayes office and the breen office and all the offices and i will tell you i know everybody likes uh that it that we shook out of it but jack valenti was no better than any of them um and uh but anyway uh the uh uh the, the 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 story of Devil Indemnity comes from James M. Cain. Um, he was a uh, crime writer. Um, he wrote for, amongst other things, Black Mask Magazine, which is where people like Hammett wrote as well. Um, he started um, with a novel called The Postman Always Wings, Rings Twice, um, which is uh, a, a property that uh, 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 MGM buys the rights for, but knows that they'll never be able to make the movie because of the content of the era. Um, and then double indemnity is kind of written afterwards. Um, it doesn't really get, um, the attention of Paramount until it's put into a, uh, an anthology, uh, collection of Kane's works called three of a kind, uh, Paramount executive Joseph Sinstrom thought the material was perfect for Wilder and the studio bought the rights for $15,000 and, they submitted the script to the Hayes office and uh, it was identical to the uh, submission that was sent when uh, they were, it was bought eight years earlier. Um, and I got to tell you, like the, 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 the way they had to write around this film to make it suitable for the era is astounding. Once you get into what happens in this plot. Um, but so when Brackett doesn't want to work on it, um, they bring in Raymond Chandler Raymond Chandler, um, the creator of Philip Marlowe, uh, uh, and uh, arguably one of the most important mystery writers of his era. Um, fun fact, if you don't have Raymond Chandler, you don't have the big Lebowski. So you're welcome. Coen brothers fans. Um, but, uh, cause that's cause, cause big Lebowski is a Raymond Chandler novel about slackers in the nineties. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, so he comes onto the project and Chandler hadn't written a script before prior to being a mystery writer. Chandler was an oil executive who lost his job because he was a fucking alcoholic. <laughs> like, most great, like most great writers. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, you know how Aaron Sorkin got where he is today, Adam. He first started out as one of the CEO, one of the, one of the board members of Apple, but then he lost his job due to drinking. And so he started writing West Wing and he said, one day I will get back at Steve Jobs. Um, <laughs> and he sure did, didn't he? Sure did. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, uh, why, so Chandler is brought in, uh, he, He's he's new to this. He doesn't know really how to write a screenplay. Wilder helps him by giving him a copy of the screenplay for Hold Back the Dawn to study it. Um, and then Chandler, after the first weekend, presents 80 pages. And can't, Wilder described it as useless camera instruction. <laughs> 
so we are already dealing with like, okay, is this movie going to even get made? Well, time goes on. The, uh, the, the, the writing is done. They had to overhaul, um, different things in this film, uh, specifically the ending. Um, Barton keys, uh, was actually a character that was changed from clueless into uh, a more of a mentor because in the in the novel Barton is a little bit more aloof and not really paying attention whereas we know Barton Keys today as a very vigilant man <laughs> very vigilant man and possibly my favorite character in the movie um but um it's his job as an insurance adjuster or an actuary very seriously oh yeah very much so um so within the within this collaboration Wilder and Chandler very much butt heads um uh and this would actually fall in line with Chandler and his working ability with other people Alfred Hitchcock had tried to work with him for a little film called Strangers on a Train um uh, but Chandler was fucking unbelievably impossible so I, I we we just we just parted ways this is not going to fucking happen <laughs> to be fair though Hitchcock himself, very difficult. So it it is true, Adam. I mean, it is very hard to um, you know play nice with people when you're the master of fucking suspense. I I, I you know I it it's very hard to play nice and just tell people like, look, I know you did your best. I'm gonna help you with these rewrites. Here's a cookie. Now go into the corner and cry it on out, son. Just cry it on out. But, you know, that's not how Hollywood works, Adam. You have to just... Sounds like Hannibal Lecter mixed with (laughs) Dr. Evil. Believe me, the Hitchcock impression has gotten worse over time. It used to be moderately okay, then it devolved into Patrick Stewart. Um, (laughs) 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 But, uh, so anyway, though, uh, one of these quotes that I found fascinating, um, and uh, it it comes from that research is, Wilder had apparently, you know, noted that like Chandler was in Alcoholics Anonymous and I think he had a tough time with me. I drove him back into drinking, which <laughs> I find super, super funny that Billy Wilder's very just, you know, he, he, he seems like he's very like, like matter of fact about it and not like flippant about it. But can you imagine like working on that script to the point where you're just like, I can't. I cannot work with this man. I, God, I need fucking whiskey immediately. <laughs> like, I fuck this guy. Yeah, like this is out of, you know, it, it gets bananas. It, post the release of this film, Chandler was disillusioned with the writing in Hollywood. And he published a piece called Writers in Hollywood for the Atlantic Monthly in 1945. And one of his complaints was, the first picture I worked on was nominated for an Academy Award if that means anything, but I was not even invited to the press review held right in the studio. He neglected though, but it, it says here though, that the studio kept him on salary for eight week shooting schedule and no changes were allowed without his approval. So he had carte blanche. He had an Orson Welles type of contract. Adam. <laughs> well, funny you should say, I just fired up the old Google machine and I found the uh, Raymond Chandler article that you speak of. Yeah. Oh my God. This this article. So is first lot. opening line: Hollywood is easy to hate, easy <laughs> to sneer at, easy to lampoon. Yep. Opening line. Yep. He's 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 pissed. He's just like, oh, these Hollywood elites think they've got it. Show down. I'll show them. <laughs> he was the oh my god. He was the first Twitter ranter. He just didn't have 140 characters. He had more than that, Adam. He had more than that. 
it's either that or he's a writer for BuzzFeed. <laughs> this well, is... I figured he'd be a writer. He would still be a writer for The Atlantic or Slate. Yes, Slate. <laughs> Consequence of sound, the playlist. <laughs> pocketing this, I am pocketing this article. So yeah, I will read it later. I think I might end up reading, reciting the... Uh, the the full article for people in an audiobook form now. <laughs> Just <laughs> and try to do my best Raymond Chandler impression like, ah, oh, you fucking Hollywood people. That's uh, the uh, bonus content for paid users? Yes, yes, no, yes. When there is a Patreon, you will get that full article in that drunken Raymond Chandler voice. Um, but uh, Wilder did respond to this article uh, with w- within the form of, we didn't invite him. How could we? He was under one. He was under the table, drunk at Lucy's, <laughs> and that Lucy's is was a was a drinking establishment for Paramount employees. So, <laughs> this, uh, you know, he, uh, it, 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 the amongst the things that that allows it is that this is one of the reasons why Wilder grew fascinated with alcoholism and ends up doing the Lost Weekend. So, um, and. Uh, he he said he made the film in part to explain Chandler to himself, <laughs> which is which is like if I had like you know like listeners might know that I I no longer drink, but if I had like if I had kept drinking for whatever reason and then saw the way back, that would have been like the equivalent of what this has happened. <laughs> like oh my god, Ben Affleck is suffering. Maybe I'm suffering too. <laughs> um. So, but anyway. They get this thing cast. They get this thing filmed. They had to find actors who could, who were clever enough to pull off that the nuance needed, so that they could really avoid any more issues with the production code than they were already going to have. Um, and you know, there was a lot of people considered for it and then passed, like Alan Ladd, James Cagney, Spencer Tracy, Gregory Peck, Frederick March. They all passed. Um, and uh, Raft, George Raft, was approached. And Raft was illiterate, so Wilder had to tell him the plot. And halfway through, Raft just told him, "Let's get to the label. Uh, let's get to the lapel bit." And he asked him, "What's a lapel bit?" And um, Wilder R- Wilder replied, "The lapel." The actor um, it responded with, "You know, when the guy flash flashes his lapel, you see his badge. You know he's a detective." And so Raft just assumed. That it would turn out that he was a good guy the entire time and whatnot. So this is why Raft's obviously not good for it. Um, How the fuck can you be an actor and not read? Well, I it, this comes from actors of that era. Like they're coming from vaudeville. They're coming from different ends of the show business. Not everybody had an education of high class. They were, you know, a lot of them went into show business just to survive. And, and Raft, Raft may have come out of that ilk. I am not as up on Raft as I should, apart from the fact that. Because he turns down every role imaginable, it's the reason Humphrey Bogart had a career. Because George Raft kept saying, what? High Sierra? Looks fucking stupid. What? Galton's Falcon? No, this looks fucking trash. Casa what now? Uh, I don't think so. I don't want to be a cafe owner. (laughs) So basically the moral of the story is learn to read and (laughs) you won't miss out on great movie. I guess I guess so. Well, and also Raft was also a person who was aware of his image, and I guess he was trying to not be completely typecast in the gangster roles, which if he had taken High Sierra, he would have been able to up his game because High Sierra is about a gangster who's much more sympathetic. Um, But when you get somebody like Fred McMurray to be in this movie, 
you are basically subverting a huge part of his image because he's known for these kind of like light on their feather kind of roles. He's kind of like a, you know, happy go lucky guy. And, but he is, he is essentially asked to play a happy go lucky guy that takes the worst turn imaginable. Uh, yeah. And, you know, there is, uh, there's, there's a lot of elements to McMurray's performance that, even though I still think of him as that guy in later Disney films and the guy from the egg and I, which is an adorable movie. If you've never seen it, it's about, you know, going to live on a farm. Um, but the other element of this is you don't have this movie without Barbara Stanwyck. Um, she is amazing in this movie. Um, Barbara Stanwyck was a prominent actress throughout the golden age of Hollywood. Um, she, she had quite a career, um, she started off within the Ziegfeld uh, as a Ziegfeld girl in 1923, works her way, gets eventually gets into um, uh, a major break in the Frank Capra film Ladies of Leisure, uh, which would lead to more stuff down the line. Um, she would end up being uh, in uh, screwball comedies of the era like Ball of Fire and The Lady Eve. Um, she would end up becoming very big. She would become famous for us nowadays for the film Sorry, Wrong Number, which is a uh, a, a murder mystery where a woman uh, listens in on somebody planning her own murder. It's a wonderful film. Um, and uh, it's, it's based on a radio play, too, which is interesting how they were able to kind of film it. Um, but she she was one of the highest paid actresses at this point. Um, in Hollywood, period. Um, she had a big name. We'll talk about how big in the post segments of this, but um, uh, she uh, she was reluctant to take this role because she was afraid that it would have an effect on her career. And this is a quote from Stanwyck. I, I said I love the script and I love you uh, to Wilder, but I'm afraid after all these years of playing heroines to go into an out-and-out killer and Mr. Wilder, rightfully so, looked at me and said, well, are you a mouse or are you an actress? And I said, well, I hope I'm an actress. He said, then do the part. And I did, and I'm very <laughs> grateful to him. <laughs> Billy Wilder, snarky whip of a man. Um, and uh, But yeah, no, it, Stanwyck gets this role, and she's, she's perfect for it. Um, and to round out this cast... We have none other than Eddie G. Uh, Chief Wiggum Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would get a chickle out of that. Adam, uh, Adam and I are huge Simpsons fans, um, but yes, no Edward G. Robinson, um, the 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 uh, the the creme de la creme of uh, gangster actors, apart from Jimmy Cagney and um, uh, Bogey. Um, he was he. Edward G. Robinson is an amazing individual. He's a Romanian-American actor, um, and he had an accent. He was born in Bucharest, Romania, and grasped the language of, uh, of, of English so well for these gangster films of the era that he would come to define a second language in this country, which is gangster talk. <laughs> like when you hear, nah, see, nah, that's Edward G. Robinson. That's Edward G. Robinson. When you hear Chief Wiggum, it's Edward G. Robinson <laughs> through, through and through. Um, and he was a very, uh, a very, very public critic of the Nazi regime. Um, and he, 
amongst his contributions to cinema that I find uh, most admirable, uh, he's the star of Confessions of a Nazi Spy, which, while not an excellent movie, is the first movie in U.S. history to address the Nazi threat directly. Um, but uh, so, yeah, he's cast in the role of Barton Keyes in one of those roles that there's a point where Edward G. Robinson halts on the bad guy roles that he's been assuming and kind of plays these off to the side characters that are not quite great, but are, but they're also not reprehensible. Like they are a bit down the middle and like they're yeah, he's side the straight character. man of this movie. He is, but I'd also argue that there's moments where he's the comedian. <laughs> like, he's, cause he's, cause there's moments where Fred McMurray is fucking stunned that things are happening around him. Um, so, but uh, let's jump into this plot, Adam, because we've got a little bit to go here. Um, it's 1938, and Walter Neff is uh, coming back to his office after what seems to be a high-speed chase. Um, uh, we get a little allusion to what the plot is going to be in that opening title card with somebody on crutches. It's a beautiful opening title card. <laughs> like, it's just a nice little allusion to like, oh, what's what do the crutches mean? Well, you're in for some shit. Um, also, can we maybe bring back the credits pre-movie, not post? Yes, I agree. That I, is a lost art. I like, agree. Oh, just give I, us the credits up front. Come on. I, who who started? Th- who really started that? We need to really figure this out because I I I want to blame George Lucas, but I can't blame everything on George Lucas. It's not all his fault. I know that Coppola does it in The Godfather. But I'm also aware that with a three-hour movie like The Godfather, you just need to get right into it. Um, and so, like, but yeah, I agree. We need more opening credit sequences. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I still love Quentin's movies to this day is because he's still doing opening title sequences. <laughs> and then, like, he splits it in half. He'll do the top half, and then he'll do some in the back half to make sure he gets mentioned at the end. Um, so, uh, but yeah, we need more. And we need title cards like this specifically. Wonderfully and beautifully artistically designed, not just Times New Roman font like plastered on the screen. I'm talking to you, Spielberg. Um, and uh, anyway, we get past those credits. He's Walter Neff's going back into his office. Um, it's very clear that he's in pain, but we don't know what for or why. Um, and then he pulls out the horn of a dictaphone and he starts going into that wonderful, wonderful, opening speech about how he thought it had he had it all planned but he didn't so here's my confession barton and it, it's it's right when we're talking about noir right off the top somebody narrating their own story <laughs> like, but, but i will say with this caveat a lot of noirs don't or basically he create billy wilder with the noir film also creates yes the motif of the voiceover mm-hmm. which i would say 90 fucking percent don't work um, yes. with a voiceover aka just watch the early cut of blade runner and you'll understand why i say that um but here it just absolutely works and also just think of it this way from a right from a writer's perspective how fucking ballsy it is to just say all right, within the first five minutes, I'm going to give away the entire thing. Five yeah. minutes in, he says, yeah, I killed Diedrichson. And you're like... But, but he doesn't tell you 
how many Dietrichsons he killed. <gasps> Oops, spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen Double Indemnity. Uh, <laughs> I told you to watch it before we got into the episode, guys. You should have fucking listened to me. Um, <laughs> I'm speaking to the audience that isn't here. Um, but uh, no, yeah, it, it is ballsy. It's ballsy. So it's so ballsy that Adam, what does this remind you of in another film of Billy Wilder's? Oh, I guess I would say it's the apartment. Ah, that's one. I'm going to go with Sunset Boulevard, where he not only has the balls to show Joe the man up front, right. he has a dead man telling him. He shows balls. you fucking dead guy in the beginning. Duh, obviously. And, 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 the dead, and the dead man's going, I bet you're wondering how I got here. And I'm like, oh my God, it's a ghost story. I'm like... <laughs> It's it's a fucking William Holden is a ghost. Boo. <laughs> like this is wonderful. Um so we flash back. He's uh we see Neff, he's on his day, he's driving, he stops off at the Dietrichson house to sell a renewal on auto insurance. Which uh, is still standing, by the way. That house? Oh my god, yes, it is still standing. It is and still it's... standing. Sixty three oh one Quebec Drive in yep. Los Angeles. Google and it. And it's, it's still right up. And it's still a um it's it, he describes it as one of those Spanish style houses that people liked for like fifteen minutes and then I guess gave up on. <laughs> oh no, there's still plenty around here in LA. Oh, I'm sure there are, but that but the dialogue he's specifically referencing is, is like it was it was in fashion for a little while, and I'm like, yeah. looks like it still is. Clearly, given the location you're shooting at, and also I don't think where you're filming is Glendale, but <laughs> whatever, <laughs> it's Hollywood movie magic. Nobody in seeing this outside of L.A. knows that Glendale doesn't look like that. <laughs> um, I mean, true. When I first moved, before I had been to L.A., I used to think when like. They talk about Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills was like way far from Los Angeles. Like, nope, it's just right in the middle. And you're like, oh shit. Yeah, yeah. So there's this whole yeah. Yeah, the the hill the hills are much closer than you think they are. Uh, Burbank it Burbank is uh uh less uh compact than you think it is. Um, it's also more uptight than I wish it would be. But whatever. Um, you know, I don't. I mean, I I, I whatever. Burbank. Burbank's a nice place. They're home to the Warner Brothers. I can dig it. Um, but uh, anyway, and the beach like, is not as close as you think. No, oh no, 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 no. Be- beach is a little bit far out. But once you get there, you you've got plenty to choose from. Um, I I like Venice Beach because it's got a lot of character slash danger imminent at every corner. But whatever, <laughs> you know, um, you know, Manhattan Beach is neat, nice too. Um, but um, back to Neff and his story. He goes into this house. Basically, strong arms his way into the Dietrichson house, and uh, to sell this auto insurance renewal. And uh, as he is having a bit of a confrontation with the with the maid at the front door, out walks Phyllis Dietrichson uh, in, in nothing but a towel and that uh, that hairdo. Which, by the way, that hairdo that Barbara Stanwyck has, it's a wig, <laughs> and she said she wore it to underscore the duplicity and the deviousness of that character and props to her it works she looks like she's up to something <laughs> well that and you can definitely see i i noted this because i mean this isn't just a wilder thing this is an all hollywood thing especially in this golden age is the male gaze um just women always positioned in the right way to be like, 
to look appealing to their male counterpart counterpart. Right now you are right on that. I will um, counteract slash back it up. uh, What you said, it is, it is something that is specific to this period. And I don't think you do it after this period ever again in Hollywood, after the golden age of Hollywood, this is kind of done. You don't have star entrances in movies anymore. Really? You really don't like the closest that I've seen is going to sound pedestrian, but it's any Marvel movie and or when Han Solo came back onto the Millennium Falcon and the Force of Skywalker or the Force of uh, the Force Awakens. Sorry, the Force of Skywalker. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Star Wars nerds. Please don't kill me. Um, <laughs> but uh, but like, but we don't have really those illuminating moments where an actress pops up on the screen, which, yes, it is part of the male gaze. It's also one of those things that if you are into Golden Age Hollywood like I am, there is something eye-popping about it and enchanting about it where... Well, it's not just the entrance. It's just how everything... Like, if you watch... Watching that entire movie, you see, one, in these dark rooms, she's always well-lit. Like, yeah. even... <laughs> even <laughs> in the car when they're going to kill Diedrichson and in her house, when Walter Neff closes the blinds, the lights get turned off, he's like, oh, she's just so pristinely lit and just... Ha! Huh. Yeah, still yeah. looks presentable. It's like, motherfucker, it is dark as fuck in here, and we can still perfectly see you, and you look gorgeous. Not, not you don't, un- you don't understand, Andrew. I have my own light in my car. Fun story. I'm Barbara Stanwyck. Hi, I, I have my own light in my car that gives me eye light and hair light and every kind of light that you can imagine. Because I'm Barbara Stanwyck, and I demand to be lit like a fucking goddess. Um, <laughs> uh, the uh. It's it, you know this is not untypical of other actresses of the era too. If you uh, oh, yeah. there were you know we have like I've never run into it on a set before, but an actor caring about how they're lit. But this was a thing where you know certain actresses were very very self conscious and self aware of how you how best to light themselves how best they would look on camera from a certain angle. Um, I know um, obviously some actors probably still have this you know, vanity about them. I think it has to do more with men at this point than it would with women in this day and age where men are more concerned than like, I, I truly feel that there's more, um, there's more, uh, guts with women to take chances with roles. Whereas men might be a little bit more self-conscious on it this day and age back then though, it all reports seem like it was mostly women, but I've heard more than enough stories about certain men having issues with their appearance in this era as well. But regardless, but regardless, this is this is an interesting situation because of the way she is lit, it's almost what I take away from it is, is that it's almost kind of meant to trick you as if like it, even though she's in on this, like she can't be all duplicitous all the time. So like it almost fools you into thinking that there's going to be a positive resolution for her and even for McMurray and that McMurray's just has to go through the hero's journey, which when you watch this movie, you understand there is no hero's journey because there's no heroes in this movie. Uh, well, except for one. We'll talk about him later. Um, um. <laughs> but so anyway, she goes in to, to sell the auto renewal. She's Her husband's not in, and they flirt a little bit. By a little bit, I mean McMurray is coming on to Phyllis very, very strongly in a way that it's it's it takes you back a minute because you're just like motherfucker you just came in to sell insurance like (laughs) 
This is this is not in your guidebook of performance. I would say one of the things that has not aged very well is the I guess the sexual aggressiveness of Fred McMurray. Um, or or is Walter Neff? I would say Walter Neff. Just yeah, well, sexual but, aggressiveness of Walter Neff. Just be like, well, I'll let myself in, and they'd be like, oh, yeah. well, your oh, your husband's not home, huh? Oh, yeah. that could. Be. And amidst that conversation, she's interested in accident policies, and uh, red flag. Yep, red flag, red flag. But but who cares? It's it's Barbara Stanwyck, and wouldn't you fall in love with her too? Um, yeah, well, we're gonna find out that that's an issue because Fred McMurray sets up an, another appointment to meet with them. Uh, he goes back to his office, and we get our introduction of uh, Barton Keys, who a- Adam, I'm gonna tell you, is my favorite character in the movie. <laughs> well, I would say he is definitely he does the most with the amount of screen time that he has. Oh yeah, that's all Robinson, baby. <laughs> It's basically sports metaphor here. So for people who don't understand sports, um, what's the basically every time Edward G. Robinson is on the screen, it's basically a fucking clear out for him where they just say where they just give him a ball and he just said, everyone get the fuck out of my way. Yeah. Um, Stan. And it's not even really a scene. He's not even like chewing the scenery. I mean, he is to an extent, but he knows what he's doing. Um, and he knows how he's playing this. And it's just, to me, though, Edward G. Robinson is always Dathan from uh, Ten Commandments. <laughs> Where's your Messiah now? <laughs> I love that movie because he's in that movie. That's why I love that movie, Adam. You, you think, I just, I love that line. Where's your Messiah now coming out of his mouth? <laughs> um, he's, um, for me, he's always going to be uh, Rico from public uh from little caesar it's um it's very cliche but there's an intensity he brings to that role where i'd argue he's actually hamming it up more than he does here this is something i wanted to ask you if you noticed you notice how he's not really crowding the room like he is giving his other actors room to breathe he's not Not like, like he doesn't like hog the moment he's very much he's aware of how to make his presence known without stealing the limelight it's a, it takes a it takes a deft hand. It takes a confidence in your personality and your approach to the character, which he's definitely pulling back on that, you know, gangster talk accent. He's just kind of more of a he's a tough guy. He's a tough guy when it comes to the insurance investigation game. I uh, think well, I think also it plays to because every scene that he's in, he's in it with Fred McMurray and McMurray, you can tell he just knows to be like, okay, because if you notice, when they have an interaction, it's basically like a three-to-one ratio in terms of lines between <laughs> Fred and Edward. Like, yeah. between Neff and, or I should say, we'll stick with character names, between Neff and Keys. Neff, it's always just him responding mm-hmm. or asking a question. It, and it's um, Keys just going off just like rat-a-tat, 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 rat-a-tat. Right. It's um. It, there's a if if I was gonna find a modern allusion to it, it is similar to when you first meet Jerry Lundegaard, um, and uh, Steve uh, uh, Walter um from uh fucking Fargo, where you know Lundegaard's setting it up, but then Buscemi just starts dominating the conversation. <laughs> like it's there's there's definitely a, a a ratio aspect and Fargo I I would argue that Fargo is a cousin to this movie in r- many ways which 
I can't be the first one to make that illusion by any stretch, but yeah. And I mean, I would say, but where keys really stands out is when they bring in, uh, when they bring in Mrs. Diedrichson and, uh, they're talking to the head of the company Mm -hmm. and she accuses him and then she storms out and he's like, how dumb are you to think that this is a suicide? And then he just fucking just boom, 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 just shuts down that argument to be like, this wasn't a suicide. Basically, his whole crux of the argument is like, this isn't a suicide because no one can die jumping off a train at 15 miles an hour, you fucking idiot. Yeah. It, it basically it, hands the head of the company his lunch in a matter of minutes. Right. And it's and it's one of those scenes that, when we get when we get to that point in there like it's he he has a line about like uh, it's your ball let's see you run with it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then once again i think that's the genius of wilder and one of the things i don't know if this was part of the times or if this was his thing that then started it off well once again with wilder and his dialogue writing the quick fast-paced witty banter because you see how with Neff and uh, Mrs. Diedrichson, they're just ping-ponging back and forth, especially when they first meet and he's trying to sell her insurance. And then also, I love this line in the beginning, when Mrs. Mrs. Diedrichson is getting changed, the housekeeper says, says this, says, they keep the liquor locked up and then two, like a less than a second passes. And Neff just says, that's fine. I keep mine. I keep my, I keep my own keys. And then just yeah. walks into the uh, parlor or sitting room or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Yeah. And like, and it's just, and you see that just constantly just ping ponging back and forth. And you see things like that, like in um, like Gilmore Girls, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and even in uh, Sorkin, mm-hmm. he does it with oh, yeah. his dialogue. Like, yeah. The so opening, the opening scene of Social Network. <laughs> That's true, and and Sorkin, just in general, in his style period, because of his, he has ratatat as well. It's funny, I I never think of Sorkin when I think of the fast paced, arguably screwball level dialogue, but he is one of those because of the pacing at which he, uh, at, at which his dialogue needs to be presented in order to be effective. And it and that that opening scene in the social network is a great example of how that style that Wilder possessed carries on and forward. He actually there's an interesting story with the film that he made after the apartment, which is one, two, three. Um, Cagney's in it. And this is around when Cagney was about to like basically he was on the outs in, in terms of his acting, and there was this scene that he has to do and where Cagney's character has to run off a huge list. Um, in this huge monologue and memorize it all and deliver it with the prompt and exactness that it needs to. And, and uh, Cagney basically told himself, like, if you don't get this in two takes, you're done. And so he gets it done. But then that's also the time where he just decides he gets the, he gets the monologue done. And that's when he makes his decision. Like, I guess I'm just, I I'm, I'm washed as an actor because Wilder is giving him, a shit ton of stuff to do 
in that dialogue scene alone. So imagine looking at the script for Double Indemnity and, and having Edward G. Robinson go like, I got to say all these words? Ah, that's that's going to be a challenge. <laughs> like, I'll, you know, I, I was able to speak a little bit of quick and rough and tough in, the pub, in Little Caesar. I guess I can handle it just fine. And bam, if he doesn't do it, uh, then, uh, then, you know, kick me to the side because he is fucking fantastic with that dialogue. Um, so McMurray goes back to the house uh, a day later than was scheduled because Phyllis uh, is uh, re- changes the appointment. They go back to meet. Um, she offers him iced tea. Um, he's wanting beer. She doesn't know what's in her ice, her own icebox. Um, so clearly she's, you know, gotten used to an affluent lifestyle. Um, so he accepts this um, uh, iced tea offer. Um, and they have a little discussion about, you know, like, like you know, you, you, what's all this tea business? Are you from England? She's like, no, I'm a native Californian. And he says, like, you know, I heard all native Californians come from Ireland. <laughs> I, I thought he said Iowa. Uh, oh, I thought I thought he said Ireland. OK, then we... <laughs> I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna have to pull that up. Yeah, we we'll have to. We we'll have to pull up that line. Well, while you're here, while you pull it up, I'll keep going with it. Basically, in this scene, she goes into how she doesn't love her husband by basically saying, "I'm worried about my husband because I want to get him an accident policy because I'm concerned because he works in an oil field and I'm worried about him getting hurt." And she inquires if there's a way that she can get an accident policy without him knowing about it. And Adam, this is the moment where Fred McMurray decides to be noble. (laughs) The man who thrust his way into her living room two days before is now suddenly like, well, now hold on a second, you criminal witch. (laughs) (laughs) I have standards. Yeah, I, I look. I only like beautiful blonde women with cheap wigs when they are when they are not trying to kill their husbands with insurance schemes. You, but, you, you madam, have crossed the line. <laughs> but once again, it goes back to how well written this is because no more than 15, this is about what, 20 minutes in? About 15 <laughs> minutes prior to, you know that he's going to help this person kill her husband. And yep. yet you're just like, oh, okay. And you just go along with it. And um, I did find the line, courtesy of our friends at imdb.com. There we go. Sorry, I don't know. No free ads. Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, Phyllis, I'm a native Californian, born right here in Los Angeles. Walter Neff. They say all native Californians come from Iowa. Ah, so then I was wrong. I was I when I heard the line this the other the, the other day, I was like. Did they make it an Irish joke? <laughs> no, I think it's definitely, I think it's kind of a dig at the movie industry because oh, it's yeah. that whole stereotype yeah. of, you know, yeah. fresh off, fresh off the bus from Iowa or whatever bumblefuck town. Yeah. Yeah. Coming, coming to be a star or I'm here to be a star. Yeah. And you know, I can say that because I, as an original Iowan born and raised, what up, <laughs> what up Charles city? Um, Charles City's listening in. <laughs> yep. Wait, wait, Adam. This isn't a call-in show, but I am getting a call from Charlton. They're on the air. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's just kind of a fun little dig, you know. Just kind oh, of yeah. at this whole thing. Like, I'm here to be a star. I'm fresh. 
I'm fresh from Iowa. I'm fresh from Nebraska, you know, wherever. Yeah, that makes more sense than what I thought, where I'm just like, why is this script trying to address immigration? But <laughs> I mean, there are some other issues with yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I wouldn't put it past you to think that. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Like, you know, we all make mistakes here on Yesteryear Valley Who Review. I make the most of them. Um, But anyway, she she goes, hey, can I get the policy without him knowing about it? He goes, fuck no, lady. And (laughs) just leaves. And then we get this montage of uh, of him uh, thinking it over and mulling it over. While he does that, he gets a drive in beer at him. Yeah, this is this is definitely of its era. Obviously, in this show, you will in, in this in this series as it goes on, you will hear us talking about much more specifically, you know, true issues and real issues that need to be discussed in the terms of social relevancy and contextual um, understanding in order to understand where we failed then and how we can improve ourselves now. But drive-in beer is like not good anytime. <laughs> like. No. And, and as most of the things we'll discuss on the show, it's all good. It's never good anytime. But this one especially feels so on the nose that you're just like, well, wait, now hold on a minute. <laughs> like a drive in beer. <laughs> it's an actual thing. And I'm guessing the car he was driving didn't have a seatbelt either. Oh, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it didn't. I mean, seatbelts didn't get taken seriously, much like masks don't get taken seriously. Maybe we need to wait a couple of years, Adam, and then masks will become taken seriously. Who knows? Fingers crossed. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, meanwhile, you we we both we both got our COVID bats to fight off the virus, right? You know, you just you know, just whack at the virus. That's all you got to do. <laughs> um, but so he comes back to he basically he said he decides he's going to go along with this. He eventually decides uh, devises a plan because she comes back to deliver his hat. And in the process, they fall in love and in lust with each other super, super quick. Um, and they go over the plan. They go over the fact that Phyllis feels like she is mistreated, that she's been beaten by her husband when he's drunk. So she's throwing in a story to get Neff further drawn into it. By the end of their wonderfully low-lit evening together, he says he's going to help her do it. And they're going to start off by... I'm going to come in to uh, sell to get the signature on the auto uh, auto renewal and I'm going to uh, pitch him on the accident insurance because I need somebody in the room to hear me pitching him accident insurance to tighten the alibi that will have to be further established. We should bring up, by the way, this movie is also called Alibi the Movie because it's all about and that's not a dig. It is literally one of the goals of this film is and why it is so brilliant is that it is basically trying to create the perfect alibi within this movie which is utterly fascinating the way how it's very airtight it's a very airtight way that mcmurray constructs it because he knows the business of insurance um but already he's using his knowledge from a workaday job in america uh pre-war post-war middle of war doesn't matter and using it for nefarious purposes. So already he's moving into that morally gray area that we talk about where you have a essentially decent guy. Um, I, I mean, if we're talking about by today's standards, he was probably bad the moment we walked in on him, but uh, or, or at least creepy. But he started. Not bad. It's, yeah, it's not least, probably he is bad. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, he's 
the first time you see him, he shows up with a gunshot wound. Yeah. Then oh, says, yeah, I killed this one. Well, yeah, and now at the audience of the era, they're probably looking at it and going like, well, maybe he's innocent, and maybe he had to do it for a good reason. And when we talk about the end of the film, we will talk about how an audience would have probably read this of the era. But long story short, this is the essentially decent working Americans spiraling into a downward trajectory as described by the tenets of noir and what it can be. Um, so he Basically go- his inner, I guess his inner flaws or inner demons are finally coming out. Like it's not, I would say it's not, which is kind of common throughout noir. It's, it's not that, Oh, they automatically just had something in them like that. It's it's always been there, and there's this one trigger that's brought it out. Right, and in the case of in the case of Neff, I think he it's, it's lust com- and greed. It's it's definitely it's greed, but there's a combination of his lust for yeah uh, Phyllis, and also the the story that uh, Phyllis is feeding him is also definitely contributing to it. Um, but regardless, he goes into this. They he comes over to the house. Um, we meet. Um, uh, Mr. Dietrichson and his daughter from a previous marriage, Lorna or Lola, sorry, Lola played by Jean Heather. Um, and she and Phyllis are playing Chinese checkers while Walter goes into the uh, spiel about accident insurance with Mr. Uh, Dietrich uh, Dietrichson. And he just, he just brushes it off going like, next thing you're going to tell me we need volcano insurance and earthquake insurance and virus insurance. And well, I mean, <laughs> you live in LA, so earthquake insurance would be good. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. You guys throwing that out there. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Like they probably could have used they've they've needed it all this time. Um, you know, but so he he rejects it. He's just like ah, maybe tomorrow. But let me sign that auto insurance policy. So he has him sign the auto one, and then he has him sign a second one, which he claims is for like a duplicate, but it's actually the accident insurance policy. And from there. She sh- he's shown the door by Phyllis, and outside he tells Phyllis, look, not only are we going to kill your husband and get some money, but we're going to go big or go home because I'm going to invoke double indemnity. You see, guys, they said the title of the movie in the movie, and it's one of those movies, and it's awesome. So <laughs> one of the brilliance of Wilder is you are learning at the same time as you are finding out about this plot, because you were learning the inner workings of the insurance industry. I didn't know anything about double indemnity or these certain kinds of insurance until I watched this movie. So look, look, this is, this is Billy Wilder talking. I, I wanted people like you, Adam, to understand that, that, that when it comes to it, we all need to be entertained in the motion pictures. We need to be enlightened in different ways, but most specifically, insurance and how to uh, either fraud a company or how to stay in line with an insurance company. This was my real goal with Double Indemnity. It wasn't to create a genre. It was to teach the American public about insurance. I just chose a very lurid way to do it. (laughs) And also, if we can go back to the house for just a minute, I also (laughs) forgot the... um, because the line where he says it's one of those Spanish style houses that were all the fad, and then he mentions he's like, you know, one of those things you grab for a nice cool thirty thousand dollars. That cool, wow, oh, thirty thousand dollars then, and the house is now worth, according to the interwebs, um, two point five million. That 
yeah, I mean, Adam, you've got thirty grand lying around, right? You can buy a nice Spanish style house in in California. Like that's not that's not hard to do, right? That's I'm actually going to go and talk to the owners of this house again, or <laughs> not again, for the first time, and say this movie said it was thirty thousand dollars. Here, let me take the check. You just you don't you don't hold up any documents. You just hold up a copy of Double Indemnity on DVD. <laughs> well, I'll like, do them at least the favor of showing them the clip where it says it's worth thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, <laughs> and then I will then be like, "Let me cut you a check." <laughs> you just you have the remote in your hand and you pause it at the right moment. You just go like and have the subtitles up and you go, "See, it's right there, thirty grand." And you and they're just like, "All right, all right, you can have it for thirty grand. Just untie us, please." Like. <laughs> Well, I don't think I'd go that extreme. No, but like the, the just I love the idea of you, of you using like what if that tries to hold up in court? Like your honor, I I, I know that they had a price at two point five million, but are you going to tell me that Paramount Pictures is a liar? <laughs> like, are you going to tell me that Fred McMurray is a liar? He's Mister Happy Go Lucky, sir. He's not born to lie. Like. <laughs> case dismissed um so they go they're gonna go with this plan the plan is to have mr dietrichson get on a train because with the train you get double indemnity and it's the insurance company pays off double in rare cases so like a train accident is a rare case it would double the payout from 50 grand to 100 grand um so uh the uh, in the in-between before this is all going to be set up, they designate times to meet up with each other so that they're not spotted with each other. Um, and amongst their first meetings, it's in the grocery store. You see them kind of talking in, uh, uh, in in secrecy. They get interrupted by one or two customers. One of them, played by Constance Purdy, has my favorite one where Fred McMurray gets her, gets her an item off the shelf and then she walks away going like, why do they always put the stuff I need on the top shelf? And I'm like, yeah, right on. Props to small people and our struggles. Uh, uh, also, to be fair, if you look, she is more than eye level with the top shelf. She just didn't want to grab it. <laughs> yeah, Maybe she just really was, maybe she knew it was Fred McMurray and was just like, I want to see Fred McMurray grab something off the shelf for me because my husband won't do it the way he does it. Like, <laughs> he's Fred McMurray after all. <laughs> he's he's Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky. We need to have him take things off the shelf in a sexy way. Um, but in that, it's revealed that, uh, that, he uh that that mr dietrichson broke his leg and so he can't get on the train that day um so their plan is stalled within that next that that next time frame we see a little time pass and then we have another meeting with keys um and keys comes in and base into uh walter's office to tell him that he's the number one salesman of the month again and also to ask him to take a lower paying job to become an insurance investigator himself which you know yeah. I mean, you, you. I mean, we've all been there. You know, you've got a high-paying job, and then somebody says, "Like your talent's being wasted. You should be paid less." <laughs> like, <laughs> I actually, I literally, because I hadn't seen this movie in a while, I literally had to pause. I turned to my wife, who had who had never seen this movie before, and I said, "Wait, wait, wait! Time out. Did he just offer him fifty dollars less for a promotion?" And I was like, "Yes." And I was like, "Hmm." Yeah. It's like, "Hey, you're great at your job." 
Here, we want to give you a better job, but it pays less. But he sells it in a way that I respect, where he's just like, your mind's being wasted here. Like, you know, you, you know, you, you, you just, you're just gallivanting about, not actually doing anything. My job takes details and it takes work. And he brings up the fact that it's a desk job and he's, and he doesn't want to be tied down to a desk. And Eddie, Eddie is selling this, uh, or Barton is selling this. Like, like it is day old, day past expiration meat at the butcher going like, no, you don't understand. This is better meat than what you're going to get if I cut it for you right out of the package. You need this day old meat. Like, <laughs> is this a plug for capitalism? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that was the note I had, which is just like today? Question mark. <laughs> 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 this, this, you see, boys and girls. Um, it, it's better to take a low-paying job, see, than to, you know, have a, a, a good-paying job. You need to have a lower-paying job, but you'll have some respect. That, that, see, that's what it's all about, see? Um, <laughs> I'm Edward G. Robinson for capitalism. Yay! Um, uh, but no, a, as they're talking and as he's trying to pitch him on <laughs> being poor, <laughs> he gets a call from, uh, uh, Walter gets a call from Phyllis to tell him that it's on, but he is still has Barton in the room with him. So he has to disguise it by calling her Margie. Uh, and he, he kind of does try to get Barton to leave. And Barton's like, no, 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 no. I can wait. Just tell her to not be so long, <laughs> which is, which is how you can't do that today because you'd be called rude all over the place. He back then is just yes, like, no, no, no. Because he is there. I mean, once again, just the large, overwhelming problem of this movie is just the rampant sexism. Because <laughs> shortly after that, when he hangs up with her, I'm like, all right, we're going to do this murder tonight. Get him. You know, we've got the plan. Edward G. Robinson then says, oh, Margie, huh? She probably drinks from the bottle. Yeah. yeah. I, I So he, he I don't know where that comes from. And at first, Adam, when I heard it, I'm like, I don't know if that's sexist so much as it's stupid. <laughs> it's to imply that she's not classy because oh, yeah. no, a yeah. woman wouldn't drink from the bottle, or if she did, she would have a straw, or is, you know, there, she always drinks out of a glass, like a yeah. lady. Yeah, yeah. The, there is the line that uh, Fred McMurray uh, elaborates on it with, which is, um, uh, I want to, I want to bring this up: a tramp in a long line of tramps. So that's a, but like now this is Fred McMurray basically saying like, so what you're saying, Barton, is that she's a tramp in a long line of tramps. And it's, it's a line that does not work today. It's so bizarre to hear it. Um, it's very much of the era. Um, again, this is not to excuse that behavior. It's just, you listen to it today and it is a little, it takes you aback to say the least. Um, and Edward G. Robinson also in this describes the reason why he has never married is because he almost did once, but then he got into investigating her and <laughs> he just, it blew up and he starts going into her, this background of this woman that he's clearly dumped years ago. Like it's so like, it's so fucking strange. Like he's he, Eddie Robinson is so committed to his job, which is one of the reasons why I love the character is that he is so obsessed with his job that he literally doesn't understand any other function of human society whatsoever. Like, no. He's just like, no, no, no. If it doesn't have anything to do with insurance, it's not worth fucking knowing, Neff. <laughs> like, 
You know, like, yes, I would love to go see Casablanca, but does it have anything to do with the insurance game? No, then I'm fucking out. See, I'm fucking out. Like, Bogart can't show insurance, but I can. That's why I'm better than him. Fuck that asshole. Like, he's way he's way too into his fucking job. Um, but so the game is on. They're going to. The plan is that they're going to strangle Mr. Dietrichson in the car on his way to the train station, and then. Uh, Fred McMurray will pose as him getting on the train. Well, um, it's not strangle, break his neck. Well, break he his dies, neck. He dies of a broken neck. That's right. Yeah, gets a broken neck. Um, and um, uh, they they're gonna have him get on the train, fall off the train, and then they'll put the body on the train tracks to simulate the 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 accident. Um, and, uh, so they get in the car, they do this, as you mentioned, Barbara Stanwyck is very well written in this car that is about to be come the death chamber of Mr. Dietrichson. Um, also, can we talk about how flawed this plan is? Yes. Let's talk about that. Okay. He goes, because in this montage, he shows all the careful steps that he says, this is what I did. I made sure that the parking lot attendant at my apartment saw me. I made sure that I had a call go out to Westwood and that they called me back to show that, hey, I was at home. Made sure that there, you know, that I would know if someone came by or called me. So he takes all those details and then he says, okay, he was going to fall off a train. All right, fine. But to think, to think that he would act that someone would actually buy the fact that this guy fell from two feet at a speed of 15 miles an hour and broke his neck it's like you couldn't have just said you know what this is what we're gonna do we're gonna drive up a little bit further and just guess what dump his i'm gonna find a way to you know not have to jump off the train but i'll get off the train maybe at a different stop and make sure no one sees me get off the train and will dump his body at a part at a point where the train was going fast. <laughs> you, so you think about it. Edward G. Robinson, it's not like he did, did this like crack detective work. He just used his uses fucking logic. Because he listened to the little man inside him, Adam. The little man inside him who told him. Eddie, Eddie, this is fucking bullshit. <laughs> it's here's the thing that I think about when I think about this plot. And I was thinking about it today is that while you are absolutely correct. And as we find out later in the film, you know, he, he you know, he breaks the case wide open because he because duh. But uh, the the nature of the plot as it stands, like from an, like fr- like if you're looking at like the idea of like, OK, we're going to simulate the accident this way and whatnot. It is an interesting death to orchestrate, especially of the era. Like it's not, we're not talking about in this current era of murder mysteries and crime solving shows and whatnot, where you hear about immensely bizarre ways in which the crime was committed and or covered up and whatnot. This is one where, especially of the era, I think what is absolutely stark about it is the orchestration of it and less the execution of it it's the idea that these people are planning this murder in such detail um arguably you don't get elaborate planning of a murder in this era until rope in 1948 by hitch 
or even consequently strangers on a train by hitch um but so like i think that while it's not airtight despite billy wilder and fred mcmurray telling me it is airtight it is it is incredibly uh incredibly uh in, inventive for the era which is why i think honestly even as we're talking about it being an issue because the logistics of it especially when he gets on the train too because he didn't expect other people would be in the smoking car like that's 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 a false statement to make everybody smoked in the in the 40s like there would be more arguably there'd be more than one person in the smoking car um but uh regardless you're watching this in 1944 you're like this is fucking bananas like they're they're going into detail on it and they're gonna oh my god they're gonna do it they're gonna do it and that's where i get that notion of like this must have been a fucking shocker for people who otherwise weren't hearing about elaborate ways to commit a murder like that that's what i think still sends on it even though as you said there's illogic issues um with that can we talk about how he gets on the train because He so Fred McMurray gets in his own cast and gets in the crutches after he's broken um, the neck of Mr. Dietrichson. And also, sorry, but no, go how does no one not notice that his foot is wrapped in a fucking towel? <laughs> maybe, maybe I can't believe it. I'm just I I really do love this movie, but now just. Picking some serious nits here. Yeah. Well, here, here. You know what, Adam? Do you remember? You know, like your your mother ever telling you it's not polite to stare. <laughs> These people would take it to heart back then. <laughs> like, you don't stare at the man who's got a got a bandage on his foot the same way you don't stare at a person who's gotten a scar face from war. Um, that's my only uh defense of that it's not a good one um yeah it's clearly a towel um but it fools everybody <laughs> and, yes uh, he gets into um the train he goes to the smoking section goes into the back he's looking out the train he's about ready to commit the jump and but there's somebody behind him a mr jackson uh who gets into a conversation with him about uh uh going out of town and being a college man and in the process he asks uh he 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 basically like asks the gentleman to get his cigars and tells him where they'll be then he jumps off the train barbara stanwick uh cues where she is they put the body there the mission is accomplished he goes back home uh he wants to establish his alibi one more time before um, he thinks the deed is fully done, he goes back down to check his car with the attendant that he left it with. And then he goes walking outside and he makes the line about like, even though everything was wrapped up, um, I I had the feeling that it wasn't. And it felt like I could not hear my own footsteps. So like there's already like some there's there's no the, the dialogue of noir and specifically like these hard boiled detective mysteries is flowing through this voiceover and in such a way that it's so powerful to establish the further paranoia that McMurray's going to feel throughout this entire movie. Um, just really, really solid stuff. It's Wilder. <clears throat> What's funny is, is that Wilder, I think he puts more comedy into his dramas than we give him credit for because the that scene alone is sort of on the nose and funny in and of itself, but because we have followed... 
McMurray's character so much. We're invested in his plot. We're invested in his success, oddly enough. And uh, so when that moment happens, there is an actual moment of paranoia translated to the audience that's effective. It's coming out of outlandish situations that could be comedic, except Wilder is dialing it into a more sincere tone. He's not losing the humor. He's just leaning in on sincere less than silly, um, which is an example of how good he is. When you watch The Apartment, for anything that's funny in The Apartment, there's also a lot of moments that are fucking dark in The Apartment. <laughs> and True. And there's like, and Sunset Boulevard does the exact, I think, honestly, Sunset Boulevard is very much a sister to, or a cousin to Double Indemnity because of how how they blur the lines between humor and dark tone. Um, so they feel like they've gotten away with it. Uh uh, Neff is brought in by keys to Mr. Norton, the head of the insurance company, because the claim has been filed. Uh, and Mr. Norton, you know, points out that it could be suicide. Now, we all know Mr. Norton, though, is really bringing this up because he doesn't want to lose $100,000. And he very much gets a talking to by keys about suicide. Not too long after Barbara Stanwyck's Phyllis has been brought in and basically like this is one of the best scenes for Barbara Stanwyck because she has to play a woman who knows she's committed murder being interrogated uh, being being interrogated and playing dumb so she's playing a couple different layers here and she's wonderful in the scene because she sells she doesn't sell it to just the audience she doesn't just sell it to Mr. Norton she's selling it to the audience like oh this woman's good like, you know, like she's she's playing dumb to the point of, you know, how dare you emotionally abuse me when I have just had my husband die. And then when that happens, uh, Barton, who claps and says, well, it's great, great the way you ran with that ball. He then goes into a speech about the different ways suicides happen and how not one of them is by train and. The uh, and specifically, he mentions the speed of the train in that speech. He also says he has 10 books on suicide back in his office. <laughs> this is the most morbid library collection I've ever heard of in my life. Like, he and he says it so quick that you wouldn't notice it, but he and then he goes through every form of suicide that is possibly imaginable. When he's done with this speech, he does something brilliant where he just says, Let me have that glass of water and just drinks it right in front of him. like that's the capper on his speech. It's so fucking brilliant. Like it, it should be pointed right now. Robinson was not nominated for an Oscar for this movie. That's a fucking crime. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is, that is an outright goddamn crime. Hands down should not have happened. But anyway, so this has all been wrapped up and, uh, <laughs> Walter thinks he's golden, but then Keyes comes back to him and goes like, you know what? I think it might actually be more than just an actual accident because that little man is telling me once again (laughs) that something's wrong. And he, as he's doing this spiel and then is about to leave, Phyllis is coming in. Um, McMurray has to hide her. um, And Keyes is just determined more than ever to get this um 
to get this to, to get the to the bottom of this because he can't ignore the little man inside him um and the the as the tension goes on and keys is about to begin his investigation lola um the D- mr dietrichson's daughter from the first marriage um goes to neff who he had met before uh at the house um, we didn't bring this up, but she, he actually gives her a lift uh, to meet with her boyfriend. Um, I want to get his name right. Um, cause Zichetti. Yeah, Nino Zacchetti. Um, hey, it's kind of spelled like my name. Maybe my name's Zacchetti. Good. If, if we can go back to that quick scene at the apartment mm-hmm. where... So Barton Keyes is talking to Walter, and then... Mrs. Diedrichson comes up and talks to and listens to the door. Now, fun fact, because the door opens out, outward, and that's against fire code. But think of it this way. They go, obviously, Billy Wilder, once again, had the wherewithal and knowledge to be like, okay, she's standing here. Where the hell is she going to hide in the hallway? What makes it more dramatic? All right, well, let's obviously, let's change the door so it can open out instead of in like most doors do gives her a chance to hide behind it but then also that subtle that subtle tick that you can tell is a wilder thing that he was the one that kind of directed this and i'm guessing with the help of like stanwick was to just be like hey just give yourself a little tug on the door to be to just let walter know Mm -hmm. i'm here and then you see how then he blocks uh Keyes' view of uh of Stanwick. So yeah. I just thought that was just a great touch. Oh you no, know, it's a beautiful touch in that moment too. Like and it's super subtle. You're not gonna notice it right away because it is like amidst Edward G. Robinson going like, and another thing about the insurance business. And like, but it is one of those key character like key things to add to the suspense, add to the intrigue. We know that there's this you know, there's this thing that could set it all off into motion if they're not careful. Um, it, you know, it's not as classy as the things I do, but whatever. But, you know, Billy's a good director, I suppose. Um, and so we, we'll go back to that daughter, though. You know, he got the he gave her a ride to meet with the Zacchetti character. Yes. She's now <clears throat> she's now having flashes of when she was a little girl um, and sh- and her mother was dying. And uh, the nurse uh, who was attending to her mother, who then died um, uh, rather suddenly, was none other than Barbara Stanwyck, uh, Phyllis Dietrichson. Um, and she addresses this up front at the beginning. Of th- this is how she met Mr. Dietrichson, is that she was the nurse to his dying wife. But uh, Lola suggests that this was murder at Phyllis's hands. And then six months later, they're married. Lola tries to push it out of her head that murder would even be in the equation until the death of her father now. And McMurray, in the process, tries to cheer her up slash get her off his trail and by taking her to dinner and then seeing her, her on multiple occasions. So he's... Uh, uh, he he's really trying to cover all the tracks that he thought he had covered completely. <laughs> like, he's... He he's falling further and further down this rabbit hole. He goes back to Keys. Keys has brought Mister Jackson back, 
and Mr. Jackson says that the person who, uh, who who's dead from the train can't be the person he saw on the train. Because so, remember, Mr. Jackson, he's a Medford man. Medford, Medford. they tell the truth. Yep, exactly. He's a Medford man. They tell the truth, and they um, squander expense accounts from insurance companies. That's what they're known to do. <laughs> like, you hear me, Medford? That's what you're known for. Um, this, is also, this is one of those things also where, like, you know, state pride is a big thing. Like, you know, I come from this part of the area, and where I'm from, we don't do that. You could say that about literally any fucking state, period. Like, <laughs> like hey, Adam, I come from Colorado. We hunt bears. It's what we do. Like, <laughs> like, like I love when people do that in these older movies because I'm just like, Every state's got a point of pride, sir. <laughs> um, and so he can pin him. Uh, uh, Neff plays cool. And this is also where ne- uh, Neff is told by Keys, like, you know what? I'm pretty much a fucking genius, Neff. Let me tell you, I think it was murder. <laughs> really? This what beautiful- gave you that? <laughs> In this beautiful shot, too, of him lounging on a couch with the shadow kind of hitting him in this kind of a, like it, it, there's clear, like the window shadow is kind of hitting him. He says like, you know what? I'm a fucking God in the insurance investigations. You want to know why? <laughs> like, <laughs> just like, he's so proud of himself. And that's why I feel proud for him too. Cause I'm like, good, you figured it out. Um, and, uh, but he, um, uh, he's also discovered that Nino, uh, the boyfriend of Lola uh, has been seeing Phyllis. So Neff's put in the situation where Keys is on his trail uh, and it's appearing that Phyllis might be two-timing around him. And they meet in the grocery store one more time for him to say that it's off. And she tries to dispel him of that notion. Um, And the uh he tries he he tries to convince her to be like don't don't take this to court don't try to sue um he goes to Lo- he goes back to meet Lola and Lola reveals that she uh knows that Nina Nino has been going to Phyllis's place and Neff is going to see this as a way to remove Phyllis before she att- attempts to murder Lola so he's trying to be the hero while also possibly trying to save his own ass. And so he uh, and he also learns that Keys believes that Walter Neff could never be a part of this because he picks up the dictaphone in Keys's office and he hears um, the Barton Keys podcast where on the Barton Keys podcast, it's not only about how good at the insurance game he is. It's also about how much that he loves Fred McMurray and how there's no way Walter Neff would ever commit a murder. Um, so, um, and, and it's a great podcast, by the way, it's sponsored by, it's sponsored by blue blades. Um, you know, it, it, the, the, uh, uh, the way it all builds up to that final moment in the house is very much a whirlwind of anxiety. Um, you as the audience are very much put into Neff's shoes to really feel like, the, the truth is catching up to me. There's no way I can get out of this. I'm fucked. All these different things. And then by the time we get to that house, when he goes in there to confront Phyllis, he's very much, 
he's 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 at his last end, so he's just kind of like, I'm just gonna fuck with her because she's been fucking with me clearly. Mm-hmm. And they go into this battle where, again, Stanwick is very well lit, but she is also enveloped in darkness around her. So it's like it's very right. very it's a very interesting lighting scheme for your villainess. Well, you also have her wearing. I mean, it's the classic um, idea art direction of like, okay, now your bad guy is wearing. She started out wearing white. She's you know pure and all that, and then by the end of the movie, she's wearing grays and blacks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and she's she's already become that moral ambiguity that that completes the noir thread, and. She, she, he, he lays into her and he explains how, you know, she can't get away with it. He's, uh, he, he's going to, he's going to attempt to get away with it and make her swing for it along with Nino, like basically to frame Nino. And, um, she's not going to have it. So he, she shoots him and the shot where she shoots him is one of those classic examples of what we think of when we think of noir that classic moment deep in the shadow only slight light is hitting mcmurray he's downward spiraled into a dark dark place and this is the darkest version of it um and she doesn't shoot again he goes up to her he grabs the gun and she she confesses that she never loved him or anybody but for whatever reason in that moment, she could not shoot him again. Now, <clears throat> when we talk about the ending of this movie, one of the things where I think that this line, why this line is utilized, is to soften these characters who are otherwise completely garbage in terms of their morality. Um, and so this is possibly an attempt to lighten up the mood and affirm that Stanwyck had developed feelings for him. But it's very clear in the way Stanwyck has delivered this performance the entire time that she's always been playing him. So it it's the only moment in the movie that feels abrupt for me because I'm like, it just feels wrong. It feels like she should not have to say that qualifier at the end, that she should have probably gone for another shot, but he goes in and grabs the gun and they have a struggle before he shoots her two times. Oh, I think it's, um, I think he pointed it out that it's like, oh, you were just using me. Um, so, I mean, I don't buy that she was ever in love with him. Mm-hmm. She says, I just think, I don't know, moment of hesitation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, she's taken aback that she's even, he's even still up on the ground, uh, up on the floor and not, you know, down on the ground. Um, and also, this lays into the femme fatale characterization, and it really kind of like when she says the line, "Like I never loved you, and I never loved anybody," it's alluding to the way femme fatales are designed, which is reactionary in certain respects to the hierarchy that was, and sadly still is, men over women. Um, but also to double down on the angle of it. Again, this comes to the positives and negatives of the femme, femme fatale, where the femme fatale has a, a a self-possessed power. They have, you know, dominance over their own destiny, but the negative is how they're painted and how they're portrayed. So it's almost like this is like, 
a, a last vestige of the femme fatale having any um, sympathy to what the viewer is supposed to believe because once you get further into the genre, they become, they, they become, they don't get the kind of outs that Barbara Stanwyck's character technically does. Even though, as you said, you're not buying it. I'm not buying it. Nobody's buying this. Nobody's buying this particular angle, which is why the movie still works. And that ending still works. So he shoots her twice leaves her to die, goes out, um, hides when he sees Nino coming up to the door, confronts Nino, gives him a nickel and tells her, tells him to call Lola and, you know, basically gets the two young lovers together, which is a symptom of most movies of this era where it's just like, well, we got to make sure that the young lovers get together because they're the young lovers and they've got to, there has to be some sort of love story in all of this. Yeah, no, exactly. Every, don't you know, Adam, everything is a love story. Even there will be blood. It's a love story between Daniel Day Lewis and Paul Dano? Question mark. Um, <laughs> you know, like, um, let's not get into that. No, no, no. That's that's for another podcast. That'll if if we ever have a Patreon, I will have you on for a debate on that film. Anyway, <laughs> um, so he goes. So we're now back to where we started. We're back to the Fred McMurray podcast. Um, you know, sponsored by Squarespace.com, and the uh, he's finishing up, and as he's finishing up his confession it's revealed that keys has been listening in long enough and McMurray is trying to plead for levity or enough time so that he can flee to Mexico. Motherfucker has been shot in the chest. He's losing blood. He's not getting to Mexico again. Keys is the smartest character in this movie because he's like, you idiot. You're not going to make it. I, I not only am I an insurance expert, I'm also an expert in practical fucking reality. <laughs> like, <laughs> Damn it, man, I'm a doctor. <laughs> damn it damn it damn it neff i'm a doctor and an insurance investigator <laughs> um, well, here, okay here's also another thing that i noticed he doesn't appear to be shot in the chest more as he was shot in the shoulder mm-hmm. if you look at that gunshot wound it's slightly off the shoulder it's not like chest where you know it could hit a vital organ it looks like a simple flesh wound in the shoulder but I'm no expert, but I'm just going where I'm seeing the blood stain. <laughs> Hi, this is Edward G. Robinson again. You can see that it's hitting a part of the shoulder where there's an artery that spills shit tons of blood. So that's why I'm correct. I'm an insurance investigator. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the he he basically like tries to make it to the door to escape to freedom, but then slumps on the door and. You know, actually, but before that, he does say the line. He's just like, now you're going to give me the speech with all the two dollar words. And uh, Robinson just says, you're all washed up, Neff. And it's so beautiful because it's just it's one of those small things that the way Robinson's delivering it, you believe you believe that moment like. I don't think any other actor is going to deliver it that with that, that frankness. It's a, it's a frankness that Robinson gives to it. Um, but yeah, he slumps to the side of the door. Robinson calls the, the ambulance and says, yeah, it's a police job. So we know that Neff's going to, uh, pay the piper in this respect. And, uh, they, he grabs a cigarette and they go over they 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 both come to terms with what's about to happen here <laughs> and the movie ends and it's uh i will say that the ending to me still feels audacious for its era because 
you really you, it's it's very much the evolution of the gangster movie where the character you have loved and or attach your sympathies to does have to die in the end. So it does fall into the morality play angle that the gangster movies had to play into in order to be made. But it still feels darker than anything that the that the gangster movies ever accomplished to a certain extent. The only the only double uh the, the only argument I'd make for the gangster period is that when you watch the public enemy and you see Tom Powers and how he meets his end, it is very, very brutal for the era. Um, as is Little Caesar as well. But there is this period where the brutality kind of dies off in its own way. You have scant examples like um, Petrified Forest, um, where you have Leslie Howard dying, but you also have Bogart being captured off screen. The best one probably being Angels with Dirty Faces, where Cagney goes to the chair, but they play it for a morality angle of he might be faking being afraid of going to the chair in order to um, uh, uh, make sure that the kids don't look up to Rocky Sullivan. But this ending here is slap dabbed in the middle of a disillusioned country. It's going to be further disillusioned after the war's end and a, a country that's dealing with an, an immense amount of dread and worry and frustration over a, a, a war that seems like it'll never end about the changings in society. So this kind of reflects that it's almost like it's a decay of that American dream in that respect, which I know that's a phrase that can be thrown around by every film critic or film historian or theorist in the world, but it's, it doesn't make it any less true. Um, but I will say that while the ending is dark, it still has that overall theme of, you know what? The good guy still wins. Edward G. Robinson, you know, Barton Keyes, he may be the third lead, but you know what? Good still triumphed over evil. He figured it out and he caught the bad guy, you know, quote unquote. That's right. Um, And also the idea of, once again, the morality of the old saying of, ooh, crime doesn't pay. (laughs) See what happens? You don't go about it honestly. Oh, like oh, yeah. while dark, it still has the under the ho- hopeful underlying themes of law and order, and you know you'll never get anywhere in this country by doing bad things. You have right. to do it honestly. Right, and it's and it's what's funny is is that as the films go on over the years in this period, they become less concerned with that area. They still have to end on an appropriate uh, ending but they get much more muddled. This is the beginning of muddlement when it comes to the ending of your film, arguably. I um, Recently at the Secret History of Hollywood Film Club, we watched a movie called The Locket, which I had never seen before, but it's with Lorraine Day and Robert Mitchum. And it's from 1948, and that film has a super dark ending that is just an absolutely mind-boggling um ending for it and actually we watched nightmare alley also which i hadn't seen in a while but nightmare alley gets so close to being this ultimately dreadfully dark ending until like literally the last 30 seconds so they're always this is an era where they're always trying to push it as far as they can and wilder's really the one who starts it off um because i said earlier that the maltese falcon is very much a predecessor to film noir i say that because 
the ending itself is very much a good guy wrap up. Like Marlo or, or Sam Spade uh, is going to turn in Mary Astor's character, Mrs. O'Shaughnessy, because he has a code with the detective. So he's been playing her this whole time. So he was always a good guy, even though he did anti-heroic deeds to get it done. Double Indemnity is the movie that says there are no good guys. There's only random chance, random circumstance. Life is uh, life is chaotic. Life has no, you know, uh, set actual rules that it's going to live by. You could be drawn. You could be drawn into this at any time. I would say it's yeah, it's a assortment of moments, mm-hmm. moments that will take you down one path, and moments that will take you down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even he even says it at the beginning. He's like, I just went about my day, but. For some reason, I couldn't get the smell of the honeysuckle out of my head and this, that, and the other. And it's like, that's one of those moments. Like, Yeah. yeah. And what you didn't hear in the uh, ending, this was a deleted audio moment, was uh, Edward G. Robinson going like, well, this case is wrapped up. I think I'll call this the honeysuckle murder. And then that, that, that'll be a great title for my book, the honeysuckle that's murder. That's a terrible <laughs> But fun fact, <laughs> they did shoot another ending. Yes, they did. Let's talk about this. They uh, there was an original ending to the novella that um, that called for the characters to commit double suicide, <laughs> which no way that's happening because uh, the yeah. suicide is strictly forbidden in the production code. And as a way to resolve the plot, Wilder wrote and filmed a different ending in which Neff goes to the gas chamber while Keys watches. Now you've seen the AFI clip where he explains why they took it out, right? No. So he says this for the AFI. I don't know how much this is Wilder kind of spilling out film philosophy, but um, he looked at it and said, like, basically the scene uh, prior to that um, uh, was more effective than adding on this additional scene with Keys watching Neff go off to the chamber. Um, his quote was, um, he's, he, they started, he started to wonder if you needed that gas chamber ending at all. And he's like, you couldn't have a more meaningful scene between two men. And the story was between these two guys. I knew it, even though I had already filmed the gas chamber scene. So we just took out the scene in the gas chamber and the, the cost of this Adam was $150,000 to the studio. (laughs) Interesting. is a not is not a um is not a like small amount of money for that era especially um it was removed over chandler's objections uh and joseph breen uh who was the head of the production code at this time his single biggest objection to the picture uh was this scene and he regarded it as unduly gruesome and he was he predicted because he could never tell the the uh, films that they couldn't go out, but he would, he would allude to the fact that local and regional censor boards would not allow it. And he would predict, he predicted with this one that it would never be approved by those local boards and those, and you're also having to deal with the Catholic legions decency and all that stuff. So you have religious groups on top of that, the footage and the sound elements are lost, but there are stills from this that you can see um, all over the internet and whatnot. It is a shame that we don't have the ending just for, curiosity killed the cat's sake um but i don't think you need a gas chamber ending i agree with wilder you don't need that because the ending to the movie is right there we know how it's going to wrap up yeah 
if you did if you did the gas chamber, all you're doing is doubling down on the crime does not pay motif. And at that point, it doesn't become noir. It becomes a everyday man version of a gangster movie. So like this ending is much more bleak than any scene of Neff going to the gas chamber. What's funny is, is that the man who knew too much actually takes it. Uh, uh, the, not the man who knew too much. Sorry, the, um, the man who wasn't there by the Coen brothers takes him to the death chair in, in the movie. movie. And that's a movie that is very much inspired by, if not strictly double indemnity, then certainly the uh, noir of the era and also the pulp novels of the era where, you know, everyday man falls into uh, 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 outside the norm circumstances. Um, and also in that movie, there's a UFO. Cause why the fuck not? It's the Coen brothers. They're going to do whatever they want. You're going to tell them they're not going to do something. Fuck you. They're the Coen brothers. Um, so, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, so yeah, the, the budget, um, the whole production went in under budget, uh, and, uh, it came out at about $927,262. Um, the, uh, 30, 370,000 of that was salaries for just four people. Uh, which were for McMurray, Stanwick, and Robinson, and then Wilder getting forty-four thousand for writing and twenty-six thousand for directing. Um, so the 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 the, uh, the amount of money tossed around for this classic is ridiculous. The movie was uh, opened up at the Keith's uh, uh, Keith's Theater in Baltimore in July third, nineteen forty-four. Um, and then it opened nationwide in July 6, 1944, and it was an immediate hit um, uh, despite a campaign by singer Kate, Kate Smith imploring the public to stay away from it on moral grounds. Um, Kate Smith is a singer from the era, best known for helping discover Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. She was also known as the Songbird of the South. And while Kate Smith undoubtedly had a beautiful voice, I don't give a shit about her opinion on cinema. So, <laughs> you know, take that dead singer. Um, okay. Kane, Kane, the author of Double Indemnity, James M. Kane, um, had this to say about it. There was a little trouble caused by this fat girl, Kate Smith, who carried on a propaganda asking people to stay away from the picture. Her advertisement probably put a million dollars on its gross, which I would agree. Um, you probably didn't have to allude to Kate Smith's weight, but whatever. I guess this is the 40s. You're going to do that because you're a man. Um, and um, and they took out uh, the studio took out trade journals promoting the virtues of their own film. This is something that Selznick um, was very known for as well. Um, and at the time uh, that Double Indemnity was released, um, Selznick had a film that was enjoying some success. In his ads, uh, Selznick claimed it was the finest picture um, that they had ever seen and how it served such noble purposes and such. Um, and uh, Wilder was not particularly uh, happy with this. Um, and Double Indemnity claimed that uh, claimed he the the ad that Double Indemnity uh, used claimed that it was the two most important words uttered in a motion picture since Broken Blossoms, uh, and Selznick. What were those to, words? What what? What were those words? Double Indemnity were more in more important than the words Broken Blossoms, 
um, which is a D.W. Griffith movie from the era. And it was basically a dig at Selznick. Um, I don't really care if Selznick's feelings were hurt because he was kind of a jackass while still a genius. <laughs> and uh, usually how it goes. And so he tried to stop the advertising of any of the trades if they continued to run Wilder's ads because Wilder was not only a genius, but he could be a bit of a snarky bitch. Um, but uh, the uh, the reviews on it were positive. Uh, the uh, Bosley Crowther, who is my favorite man to hate, uh, he said he hate, he gave it a mixed review, which again Bosley Crowther I don't think knew a damn thing about movies because he's all over the fucking place. He has no consistency. He has no agenda. He's just out to cause chaos. He's out to he's out to hurt me personally, Adam. Uh, he steadily diverting despite its dis, despite its monotonous pace and length. This movie's not that long, Adam. It's about an hour and fifty minutes. Does it drag for you at any point? I thought it was like an hour and a half. <laughs> Fuck you, Bosley Crowther. Adam Jewell is not going to take your bullshit. <laughs> Eat shit. He's like, kick rocks. Yeah. Um, he complained that the two lead characters lacked the attractiveness to render their fate of emotional consequence. And he also felt that the movie possessed a realism reminiscent of the bite of past French films. Uh, so he, like I said, he's mixed on it. He doesn't like love the movie, but isn't hated either. So basically, uh, he said he couldn't buy it because the because the leads weren't pretty enough. Yeah, he's like, nah, they weren't sexy enough. I'm I'm, bo- I'm Bosley Crowther. They're not. But sexy also, enough. at the same time, film noir once again innovative, using characters or actors, I should say, that weren't glamorous or handsome or beautiful or whatever fucking adjective you want to use to expl- to explain the way someone looks mm-hmm. uh, because you have a very i guess every man for lack of a better term every man quality i mean film noir is kind of the reason humphrey bogart got his fucking start yeah it it's it's not it, again we're talking about we're talking about a uh, a period in cinema where the the rules are changing. You don't have to be pretty to be on screen, and and especially and you bring up Bogart. What broke what Bogart ends up proving is that somebody you know. We're, I mean, we're not obviously we're not judges of appearance on this show. How can we be? I mean, like I mean, Adam looks fine. I look like garbage. But there's there's this there's this element of Bogart where you would agree that he is rather rough looking around the edges. Yeah. He's seen age. He's, he's, a seen handsome, he's a handsome man, but is he Clark Gable? No, he's not Clark Gable. Although I'd argue Bogart is sexier than Clark Gable. Cause... Or I guess was he? But also was he Cary Grant? No, nobody was. Nobody was. We would... we're a, we're a very pro Cary Grant podcast here, and I'm here to tell you that. As much as I love Bogart, Bogart could never be Cary Grant. Nobody can. It's impossible. I maintain that George Clooney's the closest we'll get just because of looks alone, but that's only it. <laughs> like <laughs> you know, like but you're right though, like Bogart is able to prove that you can have sex appeal looking the way he does, primarily because of the material he's given, but also just the the amount of rebel that he exudes within it and like fred mcmurray is not like the the most attractive human being on the planet but he does have a look about him where it would be compelling to watch him you know he does like, have it, an aw shucks dad vibe yeah exactly and, that's, like, and i put on my i put on my cardigan once i get home from work 
and I I sit with my children and my pipe, and I tell them about my day at work, and then we sit after dinner. We sit and we play parlor games. Yes, parlor games. That's that's the best way to describe Fred McMurray. Um, a, a couple other reviews, real quick here. Um, the uh, uh, Luella Parsons, who was a uh, Hearst columnist, um, so I don't necessarily take her words with any scribe or uh, detail because she's um, she's a horrible person. But I guess you could double... say her views may be slightly skewed. Uh, yeah, you you could say as if though she you, you could say she helped derail uh, the career of one of Hollywood's great geniuses, who will be discussed in a bigger series on this podcast. Um, but she said double indemnity is the finest picture of its kind ever made. And I make that flat statement without any fear of getting indigestion later from eating my own words. Yeah. Well, I wish you would have ate. Yeah. Uh, weird backhanded compliment. Yeah. Oh yeah. Very much so. But, um, you know, uh, anyway, Philip, uh, Screwer of the Los Angeles times, uh, ranked it with the human comedy, Maltese Falcon and citizen Kane as Hollywood, um, as one of Hollywood's finest. And Adam, Mr. Alfred Hitchcock had some words to say to Mr. Wilder. He wrote to Wilder, and he said, Since double indemnity, the two most important words in motion pictures are Billy and Wilder. And then he put down his pen, and he said, I crap. And, and, then, and, then he, and, then he, and then he took down his pen, and he said, That fucking twerp. I've got to figure out another way to I got to one-up him. Oh, oh, Billy, Billy, Billy. I would say... <laughs> How another reason why Billy Wilder? Hot take coming, so get hot take coming, so get your gloves out or get your oven mitts out. He's about to present some hot coal here. Why Billy Wilder greater than Alfred Hitchcock? Oh, oh, you, oh, you cheeky fucker! You see, your words say that while you're all over Skype. You can't, you can't be here to defend yourself. The, the, the action figure is talking to you right now, Adam. It's not me. I, I won't go into reasons why, if you want. <laughs> if you want my reasons why, rewind the podcast, and you'll, and you'll understand. Yeah, no, well, yes, and we've had the discussions about Hitchcock as well. But also, um, you know, there. I think that when it comes to Hitch, I mean, I, I, spent, I spent so many hours with Hitch, I'm not going to, you know, like... My feelings on Hitch as a filmmaker and as a person have grown over the over the year that I did that show to where I'll never try to say like, well, one director is better than the other because I've, I've learned that that's a hard statement to make. Oh, I, I think I, I, I think, think I will. What I will give Billy Wilder over Hitchcock any day of the week is, is that Wilder was able to write in a way that Hitchcock could not. If we're talking about Hitchcock as a writer in his own right, helping out with the stories of his films Obviously, when Hitchcock was making a movie, he relied on other writers and was presenting the ideas. He's much more of a visual mechanic in that respect. In fact, his wife, Alma, was a much, much, much more the writer in the family, um, if we get down to it. Uh, for more information on Alma Rebel, listen to that episode of Shamley Silhouette. <laughs> uh, plug. Uh, I guess, okay, so going back to the reviews, what did our boy, the King of Kings, the almighty... Roger Ebert say about it. Ah, Roger Ebert. He praised director Wilder uh, in 1998 and the cinematography by John Seitz. He says he wrote the photography of John F. Seitz helped to develop the noir style of sharp edge shadows and shots, strange angles and lonely Edward Hopper settings. This is, um, 
this is not untrue. This, and also, this is coming from 1998, so it's uh, he's. You know, like I in the retros, it's easy to retrospectively review this movie. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. it's so easy to be like, you know, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Like reading Ebert talk about it. I mean, like, I, I mean, were you alluding to anything further he would have said about this film? No, I'm just curious because just yeah, Roger does all, before his passing. He did a lot of retrospective reviews. Um, that were obviously before him and just kind of understanding his mindset because also at the same time, because his whole viewpoint of reviewing movies, it wasn't just like, oh, what does it say? What what is the artist trying to say? And, you know, blah, 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 that can come with a lot of pretentiousness when people talk about movies, which... He's like, it's it's good, but did Werner Herzog make it? <laughs> His like whole main question is like, okay, if I'm reviewing a comedy, you know what? Is it funny? Did it make me laugh? Yeah. It's, or it's... a horror movie, did I get scared? Are there good thrills in it? You know, so on and so forth, where it's just like, oh, okay, great. Um, I will say, though, sometimes... Not the best of reviews, but... but. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, I, I have my own issues with Roger Ebert's reviews um, throughout his lifetime. Um, it, one of the ones that I have is that he was he was among the people who would condemn something like Night of the Living Dead um, as something too grotesque for anybody to indulge in and made it a crusade for keeping children mentally healthy. And, um, and you know, I... I I think about that and I just think, oh, Roger, you, you don't know how much you contributed to setting back a lot of shit. So, no, fuck that. Um, he's also somebody who would retrospectively review films and go, now, now, wait a minute, I might have been wrong. And I'm like, and I that's one of the things that I take away from Roger Ebert as a positive is that he was willing to go back and eat his own words. Um, which is something that Luella Parsons probably never did because she was paid by Hearst and she didn't need to worry about eating words. She could eat food. Um, so, you know, I, I, but I agree. It is, he is one of those film critics that when we look at him, especially when he's reviewing things of the past, he is digging into the artistry of it to a point where it can't be construed too much as pretentious, pretentious attitude. Um, but in this case here, like he's very on the nose because like this is, this is the, he, John F. Seitz's cinematography does develop this, this style that's going to also notice, um, I didn't, and upon second viewing, you notice how much the camera is moving, Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. back in the forties. These cameras are just giant. Yeah. They're, they're the size of like a 65 inch flat screen. Yeah. Now, and now we should clarify also though, like they aren't constricted at this point anymore by the sound, um, the, the sound equipment because that's, so that's a, true. That's a common misnomer. Um, they're not restricted by it. So they can move, but they are bulky. Uh, and this, this film does move with efficiency. I might add. Exactly. Um, like you and- watch that opening shot when he first, in the first flashback, when he gets back into his office, or when he comes back to the office, you see the camera follow him from A to B and then back again. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, it, and it's to the point where 
it is very much like I think Wilder did take, you know, not to, you know, not not to bring up the this this potential feud again, but you know, I think Wilder did take a lot from Hitchcock in his own way in terms of watching how Hitchcock could move the camera, but not just Hitchcock, there are other directors who are able to move their camera with this kind of efficiency as well. And you know, what Wilder's doing at this point, that this being really his third outing, he's taking everything he's learned from the industry as a writer and witnessing films being made up to this point and applying them accordingly. I mean, could you say that this is like Wilder, this movie is Wilder's probably, I would say it's almost like his coming out party just being like, hey, I'm arrived, I'm here on the scene. I'd argue so. I'd argue so. Um, I mean, if not for us, the uh, the movie going audience, certainly for the one uh, the seventeenth Academy Awards held on March fifteenth, nineteen forty five, Double Indemnity was nominated for seven Oscars but didn't win a goddamn thing. Do you want to know? Do you want to know quickly, Adam, what it lost for in each uh, category? I'm gonna yes, I'm, and I will give you my one word reaction to each. All right. Uh, best sound record uh, recording, um, which the nominee was Lauren Ryder, and he lost to Edmund Hansen for a movie called Wilson, um, which is a film that I have not seen, but it is a biography of Woodrow Wilson. Um, so and... I kind of also, so I kind of don't care right away. Nicholas uh, Rosa for the score lost to Max Steiner for the film Since You Went Away. Um, I like Max Steiner. I have not seen Since You Went Away, but uh, I do like Max Steiner, so I'm not going to give the composer of Casablanca too much shit. Um, but what's your review of that? Uh, I would just say, has this film lived on? Nope. Next. Nope. Clearly not. Um, John F. Cites his photography uh, for black and white cinema or cinematography loses to Joseph Lachelle for Laura. Now, Laura hmm. is, is a movie that has endured. And Laura is a beautiful looking movie. So I think it is a competition of two noir films going head to head. And also it's directed by Otto Preminger, who is very much an influential director that should be discussed on this podcast even further, not just for what he did in this era, but also what he did after the, after this in the sixties, cause they're fucking ridiculous. Um, but, uh, but I would argue that Laura is just fine. A win. Um, although double indemnity arguably, yes, has lived on much longer. Don't worry, you're going to get angrier later um, in these categories. Probably. Uh, oh, yeah. So, best writing screenplay. Billy Wilder. The Academy Awards were these? Sorry. The 17th Annual Academy Awards. So, that was what, 45? Yep, 45. The best screenplay um, were for Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. They lost to Frank Butler and Frank Cavett for Going My Way, which I like that movie. It's not double indemnity. <laughs> Going my way, Adam, is a movie where Bing Crosby uh, plays a priest who helps reform the children in his parish. Um, yeah. And right. the movie is actually a very heartwarming movie, but again, it is not double indemnity. Uh, best actress, Barbara Stanwyck, loses to Ingrid Bergman for Gaslight. Tough call. Tough call. Because Gaslight is very good, and she is very good in it. Um, but after rewatching Double Indemnity, I like Bergman a lot. Yeah. yeah. I also 
think that Barbara Stanwyck is doing something supremely devilish in this movie to the point where I'm like, how do you not give it to her? It's almost like I'd want to say I'd want this to be a tie. <laughs> I would say it's more Ingrid Bergman. Mm. Ingrid it's, Bergman getting by on name recognition. Yeah. it's it's And Gaslight's such a great fucking movie. If you haven't seen it, it's very relevant to today. Um, best director, Billy Wilder. Loses to Leo McCarrow for Leo McCary for going my way, and best oh, picture, shit. yeah, and best best picture loses to going my way Leo McCary producer. So yeah, the Academy Awards, oh, the Academy Awards did not um, honor Billy the, with his first outing, but I think they made up for it because the following year, The Lost Weekend comes out. Everybody's like, well. This is a sincere movie about alcoholism. Let's give him and Ray Milland an Oscar. And who knows? Maybe if we give Ray Milland this Oscar, he'll eventually make a movie where he's killed by attacking frogs. And if anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, watch the movie Frogs, because what I just said happens. Um, <laughs> oh, spoiler. Uh, oh, I, well, Adam, the movie Frogs is really the movie that 2020 needs to explain its madness. It's an amazing movie about a bunch of Southern gentry who have poisoned the atmosphere around their Southern home and the animals take revenge. And the way they take revenge and murder people is the same way the mafia handles their problems by address when they go to a shopkeep and try to sell them protection. And they use that lovely phrase. Sometimes accidents happen. And that's exactly how the animals kill the people in frogs. It is it's 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 all the things adam it's all the things they all die on accident <laughs> maybe they need some double indemnity <laughs> maybe. um uh but yeah now this film has obviously gone on to even further acclaim the writers guild of america named this the 26th greatest screenplay ever the afi has it on several lists including uh, number 38 of the 100 movies, number 24 of 100 thrills, number 84 of 100 passions, and number 8 in heroes and villains for Phyllis Dietrichson villain. Uh, and in uh, the 10th edition of the 100 movies, it went up to number 29. Um, and as we've said, it's the influence of film noir. Obviously, somebody like Orson Welles isn't going to make Lady from Shanghai after, uh, but without double indemnity having some uh, part to play in the influence of it. And or I think even Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil, yes, which arguably is the ending point of noir for that particular um, era of it. Um, and uh, and and you have to keep in mind that with noir, a lot of them are not considered A pictures like Double Indemnity is. A lot of them were considered B pictures of the era. Some of the greatest noir films that we know about today were considered B pictures like touch of evil was definitely one of them. But, um, you know, a lot of these ones that thankfully are getting a resurrection from, uh, Kino Lorber and other companies, you know, you're starting to see how far the genre actually took, uh, took itself. Um, and sunset Boulevard is noir. And so Billy Wilder went back to this territory again. And, and, and I will say, I think Sunset Boulevard improves on where Double Indemnity falls flat in any case um, because Sunset Boulevard feels like a, a, a refinement of that concept. Um, and obviously set in Hollywood, there's an even more uh, reason to go lavish with the uh, acting, the hammery, the kind of like the things that go on in that film. And again, you start off with narration in 
uh, a movie like Double Indemnity and you have the audacity in Sunset Boulevard to be like, not only am I going to do that narration, but it's coming from a ghost <laughs> like or a dead man's corpse in the fucking pool. Um, so it's this movie has influenced a lot. As far as modern influences, Adam, I was asking you, where do you see this film in terms of films today? Because obviously films of this ilk aren't getting made every day, but they do find them elements of it, find themselves stuck in the modern. Well, are you just talking about like this film or in general, this genre? Um, I would say double indemnity in particular, but if you want to add noir to it, that's more than welcome. I mean, I think you could easily make a film, a double indemnity today. Um, they certainly tried to revive it back in the seventies by remaking it with Robert Redford. Uh, That's true. <laughs> I don't know if he might have been too handsome to be Walter Neff, uh, but that's just me. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, like I said, in today's standards, it obviously does not hold up with some of the tropes that it has. Uh, but not a lot of films back in from this era do. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, shit. Breakfast at Tiffany's has the infamous, I was going to say famous, but infamous uh, Mickey Rooney in uh, yeah, Yellowface that, uh, playing that's, a, that's going to be an episode. That's going to be an episode. I mean, playing a Japanese man. Yeah. I mean, you could make a movie like Double Indemnity in today's uh, film industry but the tricky part is right now it's just all about IP yeah um, if, if anything this would be a Netflix affair or a Amazon affair. yes this is a Netflix or Amazon affair something that maybe a24 picks up and does and has like a limited release but yes this is something that like Netflix would do um, and you know what? I wouldn't put it past them to make a 10 episode TV show. And you know what? I'd probably watch it. Um, unlike Ratchet, I probably won't be watching Ratchet because uh, I don't need to know what happened to Nurse Ratchet before she met um, uh, RP, RP McMurphy. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I'll, 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 I'll double on that indemnity right there. Um, I agree. This would definitely be a. Uh, uh, a Netflix affair or a very independent affair. What's interesting is, is that uh, the Coen brothers, um, I mentioned them at the top of the show, you know, are, you know, if you want to argue about the quality of each of their films and how they're not perfect, you know, that's fine to be wrong. And I, <laughs> I, um, I will say though that like uh, something I've noticed about the Coens over the years, as I've, you know, uh, kept my appreciation for them going is not just how they've kept the bastion of screwball alive, but they are arguably one of the last bastions of how to do noir correctly because their films, whether in color and black and white, like with the man who wasn't there, they are flat out like noir movies. Like when they, when they get dark and gritty, they are noir movies. Fargo is a noir movie set in the snow. It's noir in the daytime, which is very hard to do because yeah. arguably you'd want shadows in that film, but the setting of Fargo suggests that the story elements are the noir part and the visual scheme is a quirkier affair. 
the man who wasn't there is obviously the realization of that. Um, and I'd argue again, like we talked about it, like Sorkin's dialogue is a clear, uh, you, you don't get there without having a Billy Wilder influence you in some way. Um, and you know, like dialogue driven films, you know, we still laud Quentin Tarantino to this day for his dialogue. We still laud, um, other writers, um, like from the Coen brothers on down to, I'd argue like you, the, we're still feeling Wilder's influence today. I think what Wilder did that was super impressive was is that maybe this is the reason why he isn't as lauded as a Hitchcock or a Truffaut or a um, uh, a Godard or whatever like that is because Wilder injected subtler things into our lexicon that feel second nature in a way that it's not as obvious. Um it's not obvious until you actually watch Wilder's work how much he innovated. I think it really takes sitting down with Wilder's work to understand that you still get romantic comedies because of him, and arguably you still get seedy crime movies. Like you know, like Perry Mason, the show, the uh, HBO Max show, Perry Mason. Yeah, I mean that's very much like I know they're going for '30s detective, but they're also going noir with it, so it's not. It's 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 not as if this uh, this is unheard of. And, you know, arguably, I'd also say like the idea of extramarital affairs and two timing and all that stuff that's found in nearly every HBO limited series that I've seen within the last three years. That's one big acclaim, <laughs> like <laughs> whether it's the affair or big little lies. So like there's like there's definitely a thread that stems from stuff like this where you can talk about the lurid of everyday life. I think the themes of noir have become broader and can be adapted now into different stories. I think, yeah, because right now, because it used to be, well, only noir is, you know, crime or hard-boiled detectives. It's like, true, but you're able to kind of, you know, massage it a little. I guess the biggest example of, like, spinning noir off is um, Blade Runner. Yes. Um, yes. While still a cop story, you know, it takes place in the future in this very cyberpunk world um, where so and things like that. Um, it, it, and it's... even here's the thing. Here's a here's a good one that I just recently rewatched that you could almost it is a thriller and a very grotesque thriller, but there are some very noir aspects to this movie, um, I wouldn't call it a straight-up noir, but the movie Seven. Yeah. Yes, I would agree. Seven is very much uh, dealing in noir tropes because that movie is about the disillusionment of, you know, like being too, be, like being too in over your head, <laughs> like in a new job or like the, the coming into a new city. The movie is about how Brad Pitt isn't adjusting to his new crime city. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, that's if, think, fair. if you think about it, and that's and that's a noir trope. Like it's he's he's a he's a cop who thinks he has it all figured out, and he spirals ever so downward. Um, and you know, I you know, we, there if if we're talking about the most recent example, like you know, Southern Gothic has kind of adapted noir elements into it the most recent example being the devil all the time which i don't think is a perfect film but i do think does a lot with noir themes that are very reminiscent of the earlier efforts so we're still seeing it 
influence to this day. And the the noir genre, I think, is a great it's a great um, area of film that allows um, people in our country, but also film goers all over the world to examine different problems in society through a lens of what it's almost like watching real life unfold in a way that you won't get out of a regular detective story or a regular film. Like it has the, it's the one genre. It's one of the genres that has the audacity to be honest in a way that I don't think other genres are always capable of doing. Comedies can dramas can, but noir by definition has to be honest about human behavior, human societies, um, even, even on down to political realms. And, that's what we've gotten out of it is this legacy of like that, like noir kind of sets the stage for a lot of filmmakers to go big and go home with not shying away from the lurid and the CD um, in a way that, you know, and you know, Hitchcock, Hitchcock did this too. And also um, uh, uh, other, uh, other filmmakers of this era where they like, they took, they, they took the baton from Billy and kind of ran with them and gave them, gave their own spin on it. Like strangers on a train is a noir, um, you have rope, rope is a noir, but it's a very weird case for noir because it's also dealing with psychological themes about the mentality of a murderer. It's a very different, um, I had a discussion with somebody about this. It's a very different, um, it's priorities are different. Um, but it has those themes in there and, you know, well, Wells, who we'll talk about a lot down the line he obviously makes a peak pitch perfect one with touch of evil, even though there's several different versions where the quality varies. Um, and Houston, John Houston, you know, uh, he arguably made a very influential noir with the asphalt jungle. Um, and really very much doubled down on something that he almost helped create in his own way, but just barely. Cause you know, there wasn't enough time. I had to go fight a war and I had to go make a documentary that would get shelved by the government. And then I had to go shoot an, shoot an elephant in Africa. Like I had to do everything. Um, but, uh, so yeah, Adam, that's going to wrap it up. But before we go, I have two more things for you. One is, um, on the show, if I can, I will try to connect something to Jack Benny and I'm about to do it for you right now. Barbara Stanwyck was a noted, wonderful family friend of Jack Benny, along with her husband, Robert Taylor. Uh, Jack Benny had Barbara Stanwyck on many of his episodes of his wonderful radio program. Uh, On one of them, they actually parodied her film, Sorry, Wrong Number. And Jack Benny mentions double indemnity in one of his classic bits with Phil Harris as he discusses uh, different ways to take out insurance on his cast members because he's a cheapskate, Adam. You see, you see, it all connects to the glory of Jack Benny, and that's what we're here to do. Uh, but actually, if you do look up the episodes where Barbara Stanwyck is on the show, she's she's got wonderful comic timing. Obviously, she worked in Screwball, so she knows how to play up against somebody like Jack. Uh, but uh, she also just has a wonderful delivery on those episodes. She's a delight to listen to. Um, and if you haven't seen Sorry, Wrong Number, watch it. Very good little horror suspense kind of thriller. Uh, but Adam, thank you very much for sitting down for nearly three hours to talk about Double Indemnity. I think we definitely topped Billy Wilder in terms of time length. Um, uh, is there anything you want to like wrap up with in this whole discussion? Like Any final thoughts? Um... I would say just, I don't know, watch movies, watch, <laughs> go out and, and 
you know what? Don't just watch movies. Buy them and don't just buy them via digital and Amazon mm-hmm. and things like that because there's actually a great Hollywood Reporter article about the ownership of movies after you buy them digitally. But I digress. Um, just yeah. watch old movies and you will see how much they're influenced on today's on today's world. Um, and it's just fun. It's fun <laughs> to talk about. And yeah. also to, as you heard for the last three hours, us <laughs> making fun of them. Like, well, they're great. Obviously, there's a lot of holes. There's so many holes in his plan of double indemnity. Um, as well as <laughs> just how to be a person, a normal yeah. person. Um, so that's all I can say. Don't take <laughs> movies too seriously. Movies are fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think film noir is also a lost art. I think come the sixties is when it just all, they said, okay, enough of this. We're trying to move on. We're in spirit of good times. Give me something other than just death and evil women um well well you know you do know adam that one of jfk's big promises to the world was we will go to the moon and we will get rid of film noir (laughs) and also i will fight you if people are like well it's not a genre it just just happened in that one period it's like "Mm, no it didn't um like you said you like the coen brothers watch (laughs) watch not even just fargo watch blood simple Yo, oh my God, Blood Simple is one of the best examples. I should have brought that up early. Blood Simple, guys. If you haven't seen Blood Simple, I only have three. That's your first movie. Yeah, I only have one letter and two words for you. M. Emmett Walsh. (laughs) That movie is fucking brilliant at noir, and the ending is fucking nuts. I love that movie. Um, And... um, and and uh, I, I will say that um, they even carry noir elements into their comedies. Like Burn After Reading's got some noir shit running around in there, especially with the themes of infant. The whole movie is about divorce. <laughs> like <laughs> it's almost like they took the whole concept of div- uh, of that of the divorce in noir and just made a slapstick comedy out of it. So it's kind of ingenious. That's why well, I will. In every movie, movie, they take the whole idea of cynicism within the noir realm the idea of cynicism within humanity mm-hmm. that there's always something corruptible there's no one ever that's really actually truly good and they take that and they inject it into every single movie they do yeah and they and they play into the morality as well the way some of the noirs had to to appease the censor boards but they do it in such a way that uh um comes as the culmination of uh understanding how to play those characters all the way through the film to where that comeuppance is absolutely earned and is dark in the process. Um, it's not a great example, but the lady killers, it, it's not a noir film, but when you watch the comeuppance of each of those characters who are trying to kill that old lady, the dark quality in which they all die is exemplary of the lurid nature that you would get out of something like noir at the time. So there's like they're, they're, they they put that influence into their, their morality plays that they make today. Um, and other filmmakers do it too to their own extents and their own successes and or failures. You know, Blade Runner is a fantastic example of that. Um, 
and um you know it's not my favorite ridley scott movie but it's a it's a good movie um and uh so that's going to wrap it up for this episode of yesteryear ballyhoo review adam we want you back on this show i know i'm going to have you back on for a little trip down the uh uh, d- down a, a little bit, r- a little river on a, a on a tugboat when we talk about the African Queen in an upcoming Great. episode of the bigger series. Um, but you're welcome back anytime to talk any other film pre 1968. I know I've got you a, a list of stuff that you want to talk about, and hopefully we get that list to expand even further as we keep going on this crazy adventure. Um, you will learn more about where to find out about the Yesterhere Ballyhoo Review podcast at the end of this episode when you hear that theme music. Um, but until next time, we're closing the curtains on you. Uh, we're shutting down our microphones. And until next time, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R E V U E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. 